G'day, mate. Luke Ford here. Ukraine has largely disappeared from the news since October 7. But to the extent that Ukraine does get talked about, the conversation is largely about how Ukraine appears to have lost the war, that NATO has lost this war, the United States has lost this war, that the prospects for Ukraine getting back the territory seized by Russia are exceedingly dim. And I think another reason for the little play given to the Ukraine war is that it's such bad news that Ukraine is a plucky underdog. Fighting back heroically and effectively against Russia was incredibly compelling, and it was a story that many people wanted to tell. But the truth appears to be what uh, John Mearsheimer said many months ago, that uh, Russia is dominating this contest, that it's as long as it goes on, it's largely coming at a brutal cost to Ukrainian lives, that uh, Russia inevitably is going to win. It's going to take over those sections of Ukraine that are predominantly composed of Russians and that uh, Ukraine will be left as a dysfunctional rump state. And at the same time, I noticed that the United States is sounding a lot more friendly towards China. A dramatic change in the tone of U.S. rhetoric with regard to China. So I think the U.S. is increasingly accepting that its intervention leading to the Ukraine war and then subsidizing Ukraine during this war has been proven wrong and that the U.S. military is overextended now with commitments to Europe and to the Middle East. And uh, so by, by compensation, the United States is sounding a much friendlier line with regard to China. About an, effort, an attempt by the United States to resume dialogue with China. And there's reports of discussions about Xi Jinping coming to the APAC summit and perhaps meeting Biden there. And is this a piece of good fortune? Is this something that, you know, they're now going to be trying maybe to say, well, let's not focus so much on China whilst we've got these two burning problems going on. This is an opportunity to try to come to some kind of stabilisation of the situation with China. Or are we going to see another failure at dialogue? Because we've had some really very unhappy results from previous summit meetings between Xi Jinping and another failure at Biden in the past, um, with Xi Jinping on one occasion, according to a Chinese readout, complaining directly to Biden, that you tell me one thing about US policy, and then something completely different happens. I think, just building on what you said, Alexander, that the Americans understand they're in deep trouble in Ukraine, and they're in deep trouble in the Middle East. And therefore, we do not want any trouble in East Asia. And if anything, we want to you know, tamp down any tensions uh, between uh, the United States and its allies on one hand and the Chinese on the other hand. So I think that in a funny way, uh, these two crises outside of East Asia are forcing the United States uh, to tamp down its rhetoric and its antagonism towards China. I mean, it was quite striking how hard line the Biden administration was toward China after taking office. Uh, I mean, they really doubled down on what Trump was doing. Trump was quite hard line with the Chinese, but the, uh, the Biden administration went well beyond that. Uh, and there was, I think, little sign that we were going to change our basic approach before October 7th. But I think since October 7th, the United States has begun to change its tune in East Asia. And it's in large part because of these two crises. What about the Chinese? Might they say to themselves, this is an opportunity to take advantage of the fact that the United States is, a, is distracted by these crises? Might we look to do some things of our own um, that you know, can work, can play to our advantage instead in Taiwan or some other place? Or- OK, so this bloke who's hosting the conversation here, John Mearsheimer, says he listens to his podcast daily. I'll try to find his name in a sec. Well, they Alexander. want stability as well. I mean, for the record, I think they will want stability. I think they've got problems of their own. But maybe you have any thoughts about this? I mean, just guessing, looking at this situation. 
I think your comments indicated that they might take military advantage. I think they will take diplomatic advantage. I think they're taking diplomatic advantage of the situation. And it's, you know, as I like to say, it's mana from heaven for them. I mean, they get to portray themselves as the good guys. Uh, they get to blame the Americans, appropriately so, for, you know, this crisis in the Middle East, because the United States did hardly anything uh, to settle the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And now the Israelis and the Americans are joined at the hip in terms of waging this war. So the Americans definitely look like the bad guys and the Chinese can talk, as can the Russians, in ways uh, that portray themselves as the good guys and the Americans as the bad guys. So I think diplomatically, they are taking advantage of this and it's causing the United States all sorts of headaches. What they do militarily is another matter. I think with regard to Taiwan, they won't do anything as a result of this. All right, so the guy hosting this conversation, his name is Alexander Makouris, and uh, John, John Mearsheimer says he listens to his daily podcast uh, every day. So John Mearsheimer thinks this guy's worth a daily listen. I've not heard of him before, but uh, I'll have to start giving him a listen. And I think your general point, Alexander, that uh, they have problems of their own, and the last thing they want to do is start a war is correct. But I would imagine that they'll push uh, a bit harder uh, in the South China Sea. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they get rougher with the Filipinos, right? Because they have a dispute with the Philippines over, you know, who controls particular portions of the South China Sea. So they may get a bit more aggressive there. But I think overall, your basic point is correct that they're not going to get too aggressive. I think that assessment is probably correct because uh, uh, if, uh, if they can come in. Okay, here's a related video. It's hard to imagine a bigger story than the Israel and Hamas war, but in an absolute shock. All right, this guy is Cyrus Jansen, and he's been named by the New York Times as a shill for the Chinese Communist Party. Doesn't mean that, that he doesn't have some interesting things to say. Talking turn of events, U.S. and EU officials are now quietly talking with the Ukrainian government to shift strategies and broker a deal with Russia to officially end the war. According to NBC News, these conversations have included very broad outlines of what Ukraine might need to give up to reach a deal with Russia. Just look at the incredible reversal from Time Magazine, who last year named Zelensky the 2022 Person of the Year. But much like public sentiment across Western countries has changed, Time Magazine now reports the situation as the lonely fight of Vladimir Zelensky. Inside the article, it states Zelensky feels betrayed by his Western allies and goes on to quote one of Zelensky's advisors who has this to say about the Ukrainian president. He deludes himself. We are out of options. We're not winning, but try telling him that. This is the beginning of the end for Ukraine. And as I'll explain in today's video, we will look back on this failure for the US and NATO as a defining moment when the world moved away from American hegemony and officially shifted to a multipolar world. Let me explain. For the past two years, the US government has pledged hundreds of billions of dollars to Ukraine. We've donated so many weapons that we've depleted our own ammunition reserves, and we've convinced every Western ally to join the American-led sanctions against Russia. For the better part of two years, we've heard nothing from Western media other than Ukraine is winning, Putin is losing, the Russian economy is on the verge of collapsing. But the reality couldn't be farther from the truth. First of all, the vast majority of the world refused to join Russian sanctions. Over 100 countries around the globe, including the world's largest democracy, India, have not sanctioned Russia. Why? Because sanctions never work, and Russia is too important of a supplier for energy resources. Before the war, India imported less than 3% of crude oil from Russia. Fast forward to today, and India buys more than 40% of crude oil from Russia. Even the United States, who ironically led the charge to force sanctions on Russia, is still doing business with Putin's government. According to the New York Times, American companies are paying around $1 billion a year to Russia's state-owned nuclear agency to buy the fuel that generates more than half of the United States' emissions-free energy. The Russian ruble has recovered to its pre-war exchange rate against the dollar, and most significantly, Russia has positioned itself to endure this war for however long it takes. All right, so this is just a complete unforced error on the part of the United States. There was absolutely no need to march NATO right up to the, the borders of Russia. And so by marching 
NATO closer and closer to the borders of Russia and effectively making Ukraine a de facto, though not de jure, member of NATO. De facto meaning in all but legal sense and de jure meaning according to law. So the United States and NATO effectively made Ukraine a de facto part of NATO and started arming Ukraine. And this dramatically accelerated under President Biden. Remember the first time that Donald Trump got impeached? It was because he didn't send weapons to Ukraine, right? By sending weapons to Ukraine, the United States dramatically incentivized Russia to invade Ukraine because nobody who's a great power wants a strongly armed neighbor, right? You, you want your neighbors to understand that you're the great power and that you're not going to uh, put up with you know, any military threat on your border. And so by arming Ukraine, right, the very thing that got Donald Trump impeached the first time, and then Joe Biden dramatically escalated the arming of Ukraine. And for some reason, Joe Biden has been knee deep in in Ukraine for many, many years. Hunter Biden, of course, made millions and millions of dollars from deals in Ukraine. Joe Biden has always been a big Ukraine booster. And there's really no such thing as defensive weaponry in the sense of removing a threat to your to your neighbor. So the more you build up your defensive weaponry, right, the more threatened your neighbor is going to feel because it's making you stronger and, you know, more difficult to conquer. So Ukraine's future lies with getting along with Russia, just like Finland for many years, for decades, did not get to have its own foreign policy. The United States developed the Monroe Doctrine in the 19th century, saying it would not put up with European powers interfering in its sphere of the world, the Americas. Well, every great power has its own, effectively, Monroe Doctrine. Russia is simply implementing its own Monroe Doctrine, saying we're not going to put up with interference on our borders. And so Russia invaded. They've they've wrecked Ukraine. They're going to be able to take those parts of Ukraine that they want. They were never aiming at taking over all of Ukraine. At most, they invaded with 190,000 troops, right? That's not enough to take over country of approximately 40 million people like Ukraine, it would be a nightmare for Russia to occupy all of Ukraine, right? They would be up against people who hate them and who are very capable of fighting back. But it would make sense that they'd annex those parts of Ukraine, which are heavily Russian and dominantly pro-Russian. Over the past few months, we've seen a significant shift from U.S. senior officials who have started to use the word stalemate to describe the word in Ukraine. Just listen to this clip from Senator Josh Hawley after Zelensky traveled to Washington, D.C. and asked the U.S. Congress for additional funding. That in the words of, the, of uh, President Zelensky, the, the conflict is a total stalemate. That's what he said. Totally frozen, I believe, was what his words were, which is also... So the only realists that I'm seeing prominently among American politicians are among the MAGA crowd. So people like Senator Josh Hawley and an increasing number of Republicans recognize that it's foolish to throw billions after billions to Ukraine. Also, what the administration told us yesterday, the administration told us yesterday they want to spend $100 billion more, our money, more, over the next year in the hopes that it will remain a stalemate. Which leads me to ask, what, what is the goal here for the United States? I mean, what, what is it this administration wants to do? I have no earthly idea. They used to say, victory, victory, victory. Now it's... Stalemate forever. In fact, yesterday, Milley said there will be no military victory. Essentially, the war in Ukraine has come down to one simple question. Which side can maintain a military force the longest? According to the NBC article, 
Manpower is at the top of the administration's concerns right now. The US and its allies can provide Ukraine with weaponry, but if they don't have competent forces to use them, it doesn't do a lot of good. Ukraine simply doesn't have enough manpower to win this war against Russia. And Ukraine's allies, you know, strongly encourage Ukraine to launch this incredibly counterproductive counteroffensive, right? Ukraine going on the offensive, it did very little good. It cost thousands upon thousands of Ukrainian lives, completely unnecessary, a total failure. But uh, President Zelensky felt compelled to do it by the big powers who are subsidizing him. And with a larger and more important war in the Middle East escalating every day, Zelensky is left with the harsh reality of the situation. Israel is a much more important ally for the United States than Ukraine ever was. Sure. Well, is Israel really such an important ally for the United States? I mean, there's no precedent for the relationship between the United States and Israel. Israel strategically is not important to the United States, and yet we're we're absolutely bound at the hip with them. I, I think both Israel and the United States would be better off with a more distant relationship, a, a normal relationship like the United States enjoys with New Zealand, for example. Now, th there are you know, those in the pro-Israel crowd who are afraid that Israel would not survive without U.S. You know, massive subsidies and U.S. intervention or threatened intervention on their behalf. I do not believe that is true. Even if it is true, and I would say this with great sadness as someone who strongly identifies as a Zionist and definitely wants a Jewish state of Israel that's, that's strong and secure, that still the United States has to make decisions on the basis of what is good for the United States, not on the basis of what is good for countries half a world away. The U.S. was happy to support Ukraine when it was the only major conflict happening in the world. According to U.S. officials, supporting Ukraine was a good investment. The US uh, what do we mean by realist? Okay, realism means accepting the world as it is. Right? Accepting human nature as it is, rather than constantly trying to uh, change human nature, trying to work against the inexorable logic of human nature. So realist means recognizing that different people have different gifts, that uh, people in certain situations are going to you know, react predictably that uh, everybody wants to survive and is going to be willing to do almost anything to survive. And uh, realism recognizes that uh, a democracy is not necessarily more likely to be any more peaceful than an autocracy or a dictatorship, right? So realism in an American sense, right, means looking at the world primarily in terms of what is in America's best interests and looking at conflict between countries in terms of, of power, meaning both uh, civilian, economic, and military power, rather than in terms of right and wrong. US could weaken one of its largest adversaries in Russia and do so without risking any American lives. Of course, everything changed on October 7th when Israel was attacked by Hamas. Almost overnight, Ukraine went from being the biggest geopolitical story for the past 18 months to an afterthought and barely receiving coverage in Western media. And a large part of what made Ukraine the dominant story was that media, understandably, and people like to see and read stories about plucky underdogs. I don't think I have ever seen a sports movie about an underdog that I have not enjoyed. It's the, it's the only genre of which I'm aware where I've never been disappointed. Like every sports movie about an underdog, I have just loved. There's just something in the...
Media. To further confirm this shift, a new poll released this week shows decreasing support for sending additional aid to Ukraine. 41% of Americans now say the U.S. is doing too much to help Ukraine, which is a significant change from just three months ago when 24% of Americans said they felt that way. With the U.S. and EU... Okay, apparently I was muted there. I was just making the point that a uh, large reason that the Ukraine story dominated the news was that it was a feel-good story, all right? It's a plucky underdog story. Uh, this comparatively smaller country, you know, fighting off the hordes of Russia feels good to read stories, listen to stories about plucky underdogs. I mean, who doesn't love that? I've never seen an underdog sports story that I did not enjoy. I've never seen an underdog sports movie that I did not love. It's the only genre of which I'm aware where I have loved every single production in that genre. I can't think of any underdog sports movie that has disappointed me. I think it just taps into something in in the human psyche. We just love underdog stories. But now over the last few months, it's become depressingly uh, obvious that uh, Ukraine is getting slaughtered. It's suffering at an incredible rate, particularly with this pointless counteroffensive that uh, achieved very little but cost thousands upon thousands of Ukrainian lives, counteroffensive that was pushed by Ukraine's supporters but completely against Ukraine's best interests. And now, as each day goes by, it becomes more and more obvious that the the Russian Russians are in the best position in this war, that they're essentially going to take those parts of Ukraine that they want. And Ukraine, even with tens of billions of subsidies, is not going to have the power to push them out. Now pushing Ukrainian officials to accept a peace deal, this will be a loss of face for NATO and the United States, who started this war with full confidence stating they would drive Russians back to pre-invasion lines. Now it looks like Ukraine will probably end up losing at least a fifth of its country, a territory half the size of the UK. Now once again, we'll see Western media try to spin this narrative and say it wasn't a defeat in Ukraine, merely a stalemate. They'll tell the world that NATO has emerged from this conflict stronger than before, with the addition of both Sweden and Finland as new members. Ultimately, Western media will probably just blame Zelensky for poor leadership and walk away away from yet another failed war. But like I mentioned at the beginning of the video, there is a much larger story unfolding here. If the US and our NATO allies can't defeat Russia, despite spending hundreds of billions of dollars to help Ukraine win this war, it sends a message to the world the US and NATO aren't as powerful as many thought they were. Of course, US neocons will never admit this, and instead are already planning their next war. Despite the US being involved in both Ukraine and Israel, some Republicans think this isn't enough, and now want to take on China over Taiwan. But let's stop and ask a simple question. If the US can't stop Russia, which economically is okay, so it's pretty clear this guy's in video after vi- video, he is nothing but positive about the Chinese Communist Party. So that doesn't mean that he doesn't have some good analysis in some areas, but uh, I don't need his pro communism spin. All right, this is John Mearsheimer. You can communicate to the neighborhood that uh, the United States won't be there always uh, to protect them, that you know, they would have to. Uh, the Australian leader was just in China meeting with Xi Jinping, and they had a very positive meeting. Uh, and it looks like relations between Australia and China, and China are beginning to improve. And I think this is the direction that the Chinese want to go in. And this gets back to my point, to Alexander, before that I think uh, that the Chinese understand they could take advantage of the Americans now because of this mess in the Middle East. And that, coupled with abandoning wolf warrior diplomacy, will do all sorts of good things for the Chinese uh, in terms of their situation in East Asia and around the globe more generally. Yeah, well, the Australians had a policy for many years, since, uh, uh, at least since the days of John Howard and also under Kevin Rudd. But I remember speaking to John Howard once, a former prime minister, and he, he was making this uh, argument that, you know, they sh- uh, the Australians should have to choose between uh, being uh, having close economic partnership with China and having this close security partnership with the U.S. Uh, however, I think over the past few years, they did exactly that. They they, they picked one against uh, the other. And uh, I think there's been many 
yeah, political forces in Australia, which has been looking to walk this back a bit uh, and try to... Uh... Okay, I don't need that other guy's commentary. ...propitious way from making that happen. Because again, getting back to my discussion with Alexander, I think that the security competition out there is being damped down by the United States because of these two other crises. Right, he's making the point that the U.S. is trying to damp down the China-Taiwan, China versus its neighbors tensions because the U.S. is overextended. You can only give so much before you deplete yourself. I mean, it's true for individuals. One of the uh, warning signs, one of the symptoms of underowning in the 12-step group, underowners anonymous, is you know giving away your time for, for no purpose. Some people are just compulsive volunteers. And I do volunteer 5 to 15 hours a week, sometimes more. But I try to be careful in how I choose to spend my time because when you start overextending yourself, you become depleted, then you may not you know, adequately perform your duties for which you get paid. You may start to feel resentful. Uh, you start to get uh, tired and annoyed and you become a less pleasant person to deal with. And so to... The same thing applies for the U.S., both with specific military assets and munitions that we're providing our allies, but also with bandwidth, all right? There's only so much that the president and his national security team can think about. So the more they think about Ukraine, the less they can think about America's primary enemy, China. The more they think about the Middle East and Israel, right, the less bandwidth they have to think about their primary enemy, China. And... I know there are all sorts of people in my life who I have to I have to limit how much exposure I have to them because they take up an awful amount of bandwidth because they're they're so demanding, they're so pushy, they're so prodding, they're so confrontational, they're so unpleasant to deal with. And in some cases I, I cannot remove them from my life. It would just be it just would not be worth it. On the other hand, I have to keep limits up. I have to try to keep the, the chaos at bay. And I think the United States is facing this same situation. It could easily become overwhelmed just in its, its bandwidth, in its national security apparatus being consumed by Ukraine and Middle East when neither of these are vital to American strategic interests. So what's, what, what's that book by Stephen Covey, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People? And he warns about allowing the urgent to crowd out the important. So what's going on in Ukraine is urgent from an American perspective. And what's going on in Israel and Gaza is urgent from an American perspective. But it's not important. Right? What's important is China. And what's going on with China right now, vis-a-vis Taiwan, is not urgent, but it's important. Or Ukraine and Israel are urgent, but not important. And it's very easy in life to constantly be going from urgent matter to urgent matter without sufficiently addressing oneself to what is important, if not immediately urgent. Can I just now turn to the Middle East crisis? Because the Middle East crisis is the most intractable crisis throughout my lifetime. It has been going ongoing all my life. I don't imagine that it's going to end be completely resolved anytime soon, despite the fact that there's talk about it being resolved. But at least at the moment, in the crisis we have at the moment, there is a risk that it could get worse, but there are opportunities perhaps to prevent it doing so. And again, my own sense is that America's adversaries in the Middle East, who are there, Iran, its various allies, at the moment do not want to get involved in this. 
So there's a song that kind of reminds me of the U.S. relationship with Ukraine, or possibly U.S. relationship with Israel. Well, baby, there you stand, with your little head down in your hand. Oh my God, you can't believe it's happening again. Your baby's gone, and you're all alone, and it looks like the end. Back out on the street, and you're trying to remember, oh, how do you start it over? Yes, you don't know if you can. You don't care much for a stranger's touch, but you can't hold your man. You never thought you'd be alone this far down the line. But I know what's been on your mind. You're afraid it's all been wasted time. The autumn leaves have got you thinking about the first time that you fell. You didn't love the boy too much. No, no. You just love the boy too well. So you live from day to day and you dream about tomorrow and the hours go by like minutes and the shadows come to stay. So you take a little something to make them go away. I could have done so many things, baby, if I could only stop my mind from wondering what I left behind, from wondering, worrying about this wasted time. Love has come and gone. The years keep rushing on. Remember what you told me before you went out on your own. Sometimes to keep it together, you got to leave it alone. This is the Eagles making the case for a more America-first foreign policy. So perhaps the U.S. should say to Israel and Ukraine, so you can get on with your search, baby, and I can get on with mine. Maybe someday we will find that it wasn't really wasted time. But right now, American over-involvement in Ukraine and Israel just seems like so much wasted time, wasted resources. This war, that they do not want to get into a direct confrontation, either with Israel uh, or with the United States. Is this something that people, first of all, is that also your own perception? And perhaps what do you think the United States is going to do? Is it also in a kind of, get, get into some kind of implicit dialogue with its enemies in order to try to keep the situation under control? Because if it escalates, I mean, it could easily escalate in all sorts of ways, which I think would be very dangerous. There's no question about that. As you well know, uh, there are a lot of hawks uh, in Washington who would like to go to war uh, against Iran yesterday. Uh, so th there is uh, a body of people who are super hawkish on Iran. And by the way, just, yeah, just insane to get us you know, deep into another conflict. I, I mean, I, I just want to say to President Joe Biden, Desperado, why don't you come to your senses? You've been out riding fences for so long now. Oh, you're a hard one, but I know that you got your reasons. These things like foreign intervention in needless foreign conflicts like Ukraine and the Middle East, these things that are pleasing you can hurt you somehow. I mean, don't you draw the Queen of Diamonds, President Joe Biden. She'll beat you if she's able. You no, know, the Queen of Hearts is always your best friend. America first, baby. Now, it seems to me some fine things have been laid upon your table, but you only want the things that you can't get. Like uh, the Biden administration was very hard-headed in their own way in supporting Ukraine because they thought by so doing they could destroy Russia and remove it from the ranks of the great powers. But that's not possible. I mean, Joe Biden, desperado, you ain't getting no younger. Your pain and your hunger, they're driving you home. And freedom? Like freedom for gay marriage in Afghanistan and Iraq and Taiwan and Ukraine and Israel. 
right? Freedom, well, that's just some people talking. Your prison is walking through this world all alone. Now, your feet get cold in the wintertime. The sky won't snow and the sun won't shine. Global warming, warming, we have to pay attention to global warming. It's hard to tell the nighttime from the day. You're losing all your highs and lows. Ain't it funny how the feeling goes away? Come on, desperado. Why don't you come to your fences? Senses, come down from your fences, open the gate. It may be raining, but there's a rainbow above you. You better let somebody love you before it's too late. I mean, the eagles. Talk about mavens of foreign policy. They blame Iran uh, for uh, what Hamas did uh, for Hezbollah. Uh, Iran is the master puppeteer uh, in their story. And if we can deal with Iran, uh, that will solve all these other problems. I believe this is ridiculous. Uh, Yeah, I agree. (laughs) This is ridiculous. I mean, Iran is rationally pursuing its own national best interests, right? They saw the United States execute massive regime change in Afghanistan and Iraq. They see the United States heavily subsidizing its greatest enemy, Israel. And so, too, Iran is trying to pursue the the national policy, the foreign policy that is best aligned with its own interests. I believe that Hamas and Hezbollah think on their own. They certainly get support from Iran, but taking out Iran is not going to solve those problems. Furthermore, you're not going to take out Iran. You're just going to make the situation worse. And so I think in the final analysis, what the Biden administration wants to do is make sure that this doesn't escalate. As we were talking about a few minutes ago, the United States has its hands full with Ukraine, China, and the present war in Gaza between Hamas and Israel. The last thing the United States needs is for this war to escalate to the point where Hamas Hezbollah and Iran are all in the fight, and the fight with the Palestinians spreads from Gaza to the West Bank. I mean, this is a nightmare scenario. We will get pulled into it. Just look at all the military assets we have in the region. Hard to imagine us. Right. So a realist foreign policy does not necessarily mean an isolationist foreign policy, all right? You pursue international alliances to the extent that they're in your national interest, right? The U.S. has all sorts of foreign alliances that I think broadly are in America's best interest. I would say subsidizing Ukraine has not been in America's best interest. I would say that America's unique relationship with Israel is not in America's best interest. So some some of these forms of foreign intervention are against our best interests. But being a hard-headed realist does not mean being an isolationist. It means being highly selective with your international alliances and involvement especially tailored to your own national interests. And the U.S. has been talking really tough vis-a-vis China, but uh, it's one of these situations where it's probably better to act tough than to talk tough. So Nancy Pelosi going to visit Taiwan, dramatically escalating tensions between Taiwan and China and the United States was just completely unnecessary, right? The more you do things to unnecessarily raise tensions between yourself and another major power, the more you increase the odds of something catastrophic happening. I mean, just think about your own interactions. The more you you are at ease and the people around you are at ease, right, the less chance there is for misunderstanding and unnecessary conflict. But as soon as the the tension rises between you and another person, the harder it is to achieve some kind of modus, modus vivendi. That's why uh, marital counselors often talk to couples about trying to reduce the heat in their interactions and not trying to do hard work of negotiating differences when emotions are burning hot, just try to cool things down and then try to reach some kind of accommodation. But the U.S. has been unnecessarily talking tough, and people like Nancy Pelosi have gone to visit Taiwan. 
and uh, Joe Biden keeps talking out loud about how the U.S. will, you know, go to war on behalf of Taiwan. These are unnecessary things, unnecessarily exacerbating tensions between the U.S. and China, and therefore dramatically increasing the chances that something catastrophic will happen. Sitting that one out. So then we're in a full-scale war in the greater Middle East. This would be a disaster. So my sense is that the Biden administration is uh, playing tough with Iran and with Hezbollah, but for the purposes of preventing the war from escalating. So I don't see us uh, 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 causing this war uh, to escalate horizontally, that the Gaza-Israel uh, uh, or the Hamas-Israel war in Gaza. And, and in fact, I think that behind the scenes, the United States is trying, with, trying as much as it can to shut this war down in, in Gaza uh, because it's not to our advantage. It wasn't to our advantage to have Joe Biden go visit Israel during a time of war and to embrace Bibi Netanyahu, who's wildly unpopular with Israelis, let alone other people in the Middle East. But uh, does, uh, is it a possibility that Israel, uh, what do they say, that the tail wags the dog? Is it possible that they are pursuing uh, objectives uh, different from the United States? Uh, indeed, uh, what, would, what would be the objectives? I so I was talking to a Jewish lawyer the other day, and I got an interesting Israeli perspective. And so we often hear about proportionate response vis-a-vis Israel versus Hamas and, and Gaza. And this, this attorney made the point that a proportionate response is with regard to intent, not with regard to means. So if someone comes after you with a knife, all right, that doesn't mean that you can only respond with a knife. If a person's coming after you with a knife, there's a high reason to believe that they are coming after you with the intent of killing you and therefore you are legally entitled to do absolutely anything to try to save your life including killing the other person who's coming after you with a knife so hamas has made it clear that it wants to kill every single jewish israeli that's the intent on behalf of hamas israel is dealing with a genocidal enemy and so israel's response from this perspective is proportionate you're going after someone who wants to exterminate you, that's the intent, all right? And so you are responding with equal proportion to that intent. You're recognizing you have an implacable genocidal enemy. And uh, I thought, oh, that's that's a really good point. And then uh, this attorney made another point about uh, felonies attached to a murder. So let's say Joe goes to rob a bank. And in the process of trying to rob a bank, uh, the police start firing shots at Joe and the police kill some innocent bystanders, right? Those deaths are added to Joe's criminal charges, all right? When you precipitate a situation that leads to a whole string of felonies, uh, the deaths of innocent people, that's on you for precipitating a murderous situation. So Hamas precipitated a war to the death with Israel. And therefore, from this line of argument, the the accidental and civilian deaths that then follow from this genocidal war waged by Hamas are on Hamas. Two interesting pro-Jewish, pro-Israel talking points. I don't share many pro-Israel talking points. I don't usually try to engage in uh, th- that sort of conversation. But, you know, I heard that and I thought, oh, that's interesting.
So I know, obviously, the stated objective would be to take out Hamas, which sounds like something the entire Western political media establishment would support. However, there also seems to be a wider objective in terms of resolving this you know, Palestinian problem, which Alexander has mentioned going on for all of our lifetimes. Uh, but uh, does this entail, if it entails uh, ethnically cleansing and annexing at least northern parts of Gaza, uh, again, I hope I'm wrong, but uh, can, can this objective then be achieved? But also... Uh, I'm just thinking, what would be the reaction? Because I don't think the neighboring countries want to join in on this. But uh, you know, I see the rage boiling uh, in the neighboring countries. I see Western allies becoming more uncomfortable with the war crimes, and even within uh, Israel, there's a lot of opposition, uh, uh, which tends to blame Netanyahu. So I'm just wondering, uh, is, is, is it possible for Israel to achieve what it wants, and is it possible for Israel to pull America into something it doesn't want to do, or uh, it's, a, it's a strange relationship between uh, Tel Aviv and Washington? Well, the general point that I would make in response to your various points is that the only solution to this problem is a political one. And the Israelis tend to think that uh, the problem can be solved militarily. Uh, this goes back to the early days of Zionism when Zev Yabotinsky. Okay, I gave some pro-Israel talking points. Let's get some critical talking points here by uh, Norman Finkelstein. Damn, where's the... Uh... <laughs> where's the... Oh, there it is. I can unmute in this. the entire Arab You're happy. Not no. one country in the entire Arab world wants to help them. The, Why? Thank you. I'll answer in one simple sentence. We, we're going to. Any of the European countries or the United States want Jews before the Nazi Holocaust? Maybe the Jews were like the Palestinians. They were so horrible, or as the current Israeli government calls them human animals you think that's the reason this is gentlemen you think that's the reason you're smiling but your stupid smirk won't change the fact that the very argument you used was used by hitler because i'm a jew and you gentlemen nobody wants them because they're so terrible and so horrible you're a nazi speaking now <laughs> in those kinds of arguments the, the funny this, this has become very contentious we're going to take a break okay Not i one didn't catch the beginning in the entire arab world wants to help them the, why thank Sanchez, you i'll answer in one simple sentence we, we're going to any of the european countries or the united states want jews before the nazi holocaust maybe the Jews were like and the so Palestinians. They were so not horrible, or as the current Israeli government calls them. Okay, interesting. Who was a very famous Zionist thinker, uh, invented this concept of the Iron Wall. And basically, the Iron Wall said that if Israel used military force, it could beat the Palestinians into submission. It could force them to accept the fact that Israel controlled uh, all of the territory and the Palestinians had no choice but to live under Israel's thumb. Uh, the Israelis have employed the Iron Wall for decades on end. It doesn't work. They're not going to be able to beat the Palestinians into submission. So they can pound Gaza all they want. They can destroy all the Hamas forces they want. But the Palestinians are going to come back another day and fight. They're going to rebel. They're not going to live uh, underneath uh, uh, Israeli occupation without putting up resistance. So the only solution along the way, the only viable solution in my opinion along the way, was a two-state solution which is where you give the Palestinians a state of their own, which is right next door to a Jewish state. That, that was the only solution. Uh, but we failed to make that happen. Every president since Jimmy Carter has tried hard to make that work, but it didn't work. And we're in the mess that we're in now. And I find it almost impossible to imagine that we're going to get a two-state solution. So this is why I agree with Alexander that this is the worst of all the crises we face. And it's hard to see you know, how we and the Israelis get out of it. 
Can I just say, I mean, my own feeling, and this is my own view of this, is that President Biden made a mistake when he went to Israel and embraced Prime Minister Netanyahu. And to all external appearances, what he may have been saying in private may have been different, but to all external appearances, seemed to be giving Prime Minister Netanyahu in total endorsement to do whatever it wanted he wanted to do in Gaza. And I find it very difficult to understand myself why, given the fact that the United States does have leverage, perhaps not as much as it used to, but it still does have decisive leverage, in my opinion, over Israel in these sorts of moves, it took that decision. Was it not understood in... I don't know how much leverage the United States does have over Israel or any country that feels like it's fighting for its life. So Israel feels that uh, Hamas presents an existential threat. Israel's had to evacuate over 100,000 people. Just imagine if the United States had to evacuate California because there were deadly uh, drug gangs making you know, genocidal raids into California and the United States could not protect California. Right? The United States would feel that was an existential threat to its existence, even though the threat was just to one state. So to Israel feels that uh, Hamas naturally is an existential threat to its existence and has had to evacuate you know, much of the south of Israel, you know, countless numbers of towns due to the genocidal threat by Hamas. So when a country like Israel is facing a fight for its own survival, I'm not sure the United States has that much leverage over it. Washington, that if you do something like that, then you risk being dragged in to a crisis over which you may have only a limited amount of control. I mean, it, it wasn't recognized. That logic wasn't recognized in Washington. And in particular, it wasn't recognized by uh, President Biden. Let me just make a couple points on this. First of all, for a long time, it's been manifestly clear that President Biden has a passionate attachment to Israel. He is deeply committed to Israel. And I think that is what led him to go over there and to hug Bibi Netanyahu in a very public way, even though Netanyahu and Biden have long had adversarial relations. I think that Biden's love of Israel, love of the Zionist enterprise, just caused him to go over there and do that. And of course, you're right that this was not a smart thing to do from a strategic point of view. And by the way, you can make the argument that it was not in Israel's interest for him to do that. Because as was the case in the United States after 9-11, the Israelis sort of overreacted to what happened on October 7th. They were almost unhinged by the events of October 7th. And of course, this happened in the United States uh, after uh, September 11th. And we went on a crusade. Uh, we uh, did all sorts of foolish things on the foreign policy front. So I think in the Israeli case, for understandable reason, there was going to be a powerful incentive or set of incentives for them uh, to do foolish things. And what was needed was for the United States to cool them down, to tell them to think long and hard about what they should do uh, to deal with this really serious problem, to put it mildly, from their point of view. But we did the opposite. We basically went over there and put uh, uh, ourselves in a position where they could do anything they wanted, and we had hardly any leverage over them. And uh, now we're in this terrible mess with no sign of getting out. I saw that General Brown, who's the new chair, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who strikes me, by the way, as a clever man. I mean, he's somebody who understands these things rather well, at least understands them to a certain extent. Anyway, he said in, apparently he was in Japan, but he was asked about the conflict in Gaza. And he said that destroying Hamas would be a very tall order, in other words, a challenging thing for the Israelis to achieve. I mean, is that, should we take that as a sign? Yeah, I mean, destroying Hamas 100% is verging on the impossible. What you want to do is strongly incentivize your enemies to not attack you because your own response to an attack is so brutal. So 
Israel is strongly incentivized to smash Hamas as much as is rationally, logically possible so that uh, other entities such as Hezbollah and other nations such as Iran are strongly incentivized not to attack Israel. It's not a matter of Israel needs to wipe out every single person who identifies with Hamas. It needs to sufficiently punish Hamas and punish Hamas's friends. Uh, this gets back to kind of a traditional conception of, of people versus a modern conception. So the traditional conception is that we're porous, that, that what's going on with my neighbors affects me, that, uh, that there are all sorts of spirits in the world for good and for evil, and that the human being is, is vulnerable, and to maintain as much security as possible, that uh, communities have to drive out contagion, have to drive out the most flagrant forms of impurity to try to keep individuals safe. The modern liberal secular notion is that we are buffered, that the human being can decide reason and morality from inside his own head, that uh, we can, using the power of our reason, strategically navigate our way through life. The traditional conception of life is much more skeptical with regard to reason. So with the Enlightenment and this notion that we can use our, our reason to strategically navigate our way through life, this is based on a foundation that people are basically good. The traditional conception of human nature is that we are not basically good. Another way of understanding this division is the difference in the thought between Thomas Hobbes and John Locke, who were both leading 17th century thinkers. Hobbes saw the state of nature as brutal, nasty, and that in a state of nature, life is short and, and brutish and, and vicious. John Locke looked at the state of nature and saw that people were strongly incentivized to cooperate with each other and to make deals with each other and that people could rationally and strategically reach accommodations with their neighbors. And I, I'm a little bit more of a Hobbesian, though I, I recognize many advantages to the Lockean perspective. But a traditional perspective is wary about entanglements. Remember President George Washington's farewell address where he warned Americans about foreign entanglements because once you start getting entangled with other nations to a degree that's beyond your own national interest, you can often get pulled into conflicts and, and currents of, of dissent and worry and fear that, that drive people in ways that are not immediately rationally explicable while from a liberal perspective, from this perspective of the more rational, strategic, autonomous Buffett itself, there's much more of a sense that we can manage strategically the United States ourselves as we move through, through the world. So the traditional perspective is a little bit more humble about human limitations and national limitations. That there are some people in Washington who perhaps are saying, you know, maybe you know, the Pentagon, maybe you know, we, we need to start thinking in a more political way rather than in a military way. And you said that the United States might be looking for ways to tamp down this conflict, the one in Gaza. Could this be, a, you know, a sign of that? I think a little bit of stoicism is a, a good idea, but overall, it seems to be a strategy for losers and for losing. All right, people who adopt stoic attitudes do not tend to thrive in life because stoics you know, overestimate human autonomy. We need other people, right? People who need people are the luckiest people in the world, right? The best way to survive inflation, to survive unemployment, to survive an earthquake, 
or some kind of massive fire or a massive disaster is to have human connections, to have friends, to have a community. And so if you are deeply enmeshed, you know, if you are connected with, with other people, you are going to be, on the one hand, more vulnerable, but also more resilient. And so a little bit of stoicism, right, I, I think is a, is a good thing. But stoicism as a life philosophy, it seems to generally be a life philosophy for loners, and loners are generally losers. Not every stoic is a loser. You know, there's, there's wisdom in stoicism. But, but it seems to be people adopt it when they have failed the most basic task of building human connection. The, you know, the General Brown is talking this way. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And I, I think that he's not uh, unusual uh, in the foreign policy establishment, even strong supporters of Israel, many strong supporters of Israel, uh, who I know are deeply depressed because they think there is no military solution to the problem. They do not believe that you can defeat Hamas in any meaningful way. And people will point out that if you listen to the Israelis talk, they say that it's going to take many months, if not a year or so, to defeat Hamas. And the question you then have to ask yourself is world public opinion and American public opinion or more generally Western public opinion going to support a continuation of what the Israelis are doing now for a year? Uh, and I find that hard to imagine. This is going to have to stop at some point in the not too distant future. And in the end, Hamas is not going to be defeated. Uh, and uh, so therefore, you need a political solution. But Alexander, I would ask you, what is the political so Curtis Yavin says that Americans should feel absolutely nothing with regard to what's going on in, in the Middle East. I, I think that's absurd. Like the, the human being feels things often long before we can rationally make them out. But it doesn't mean that we need to follow our feelings with intervention. So I, to the best of my knowledge, I'm 100% emotionally on the side of Ukraine in its battle against Russia. But I strongly oppose American or European intervention into Ukraine or subsidizing Ukraine. So I can feel things. I can totally side with the underdog. Doesn't mean that I would support uh, arming or intervening on behalf of Ukraine. So it would be normal, natural and healthy for people to read the news, watch the news in the Middle East. And for some people to you know, develop strong emotional feelings about it doesn't mean that American foreign policy needs to be based on those feelings. On the other hand, I would expect, and I do believe this is true, Americans should and do primarily care about Americans. Uh, one of my best arguments for this is that uh, Lieutenant William Calley, who directed the My Lai massacre in Vietnam in 1968 that killed between 350 and 500 civilian Vietnamese, right? his punishment was four years of house arrest. Right? Americans don't care about Americans who slaughter non-Americans. When I grew up in Australia, the predominant Australian attitude was that if you weren't Australian, you just didn't matter. This is the normal, natural, tribal nature of, of human beings. So if you watch the events in the Middle East and you don't care, right, you don't have any strong emotional attachment, you don't pick a side, uh, yeah, I think that's normal, natural, and healthy. On the other hand, if you watch the events and you do care and you do have emotions, that, that also makes sense, but it doesn't mean that we need to follow our emotions with armed intervention. Solution. Yeah, this, would have been, this would have been my question because I, I, I tend to agree with what you said. Uh, the two-state solution was pretty much the only way out. Because uh, if you look at the demographics, uh, if you look at Palestinians, uh, which is included in, um, in Gaza and the West Bank, uh, they're about 50-50 with, uh, with the Jewish people. So, so from this perspective, if you don't have a two-state solution, how do you 
preserve the, the Jewish uh, state. Do you, I mean, either it will be ethnic cleansing or it will be apartheid, but uh, otherwise, well, I, I just don't see what another solution uh, would be. And uh, I, I guess the best one can hope for then would be, be able to go back to the way things were before the 7th of October, but it doesn't seem like either the Palestinians or the Israelis uh, seem too interested. Well, I think, you know, just to build on what you said, Glenn, I think that before uh, October 7th, uh, Israel was effectively an apartheid state. It's very controversial to say that, but as I've pointed out on a number of occasions, uh, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, and B'Tselem, which is the leading human rights group in Israel, all three of those organizations have produced sophisticated reports that make the case that Israel is an apartheid state. Furthermore, if you follow the uh, Israeli media, like I do, it's commonplace for Israelis, including Israeli elites, to describe Israel as an apartheid state. It's only in the United States or the West more generally that you can't say that without being attacked. But it is, in large part, an apartheid state, right? Now, the problem is that since October 7th, it's become very apparent to all sorts of people that that is the case. Before October 7th, it was a rather uh, mute issue. What, what, the, what the Israelis were doing to the Palestinians was not talked about very much. It looked like the Israelis, before October 7th, were able to manage their problem with the Palestinians, both in the West Bank, where Mahmoud Abbas was doing their dirty work, and in Gaza, where they basically had the Palestinians in this giant open-air prison and under control for the most part. And in fact, as everybody knows, the Israeli government was happy to work with Hamas to undermine the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank. So the situation looked as good as it could look for Israel, given the fact that you had this suffocating occupation, or if you want to call it apartheid, call it apartheid. But the situation has just fundamentally changed now. This issue was out on the front burner, and everybody's talking about how to now I'm looking at uh, one academic study on the relationship between stoicism and mental health outcomes. Big Boys Don't Cry, Investigation of Stoicism and Its Mental Health Outcomes. So stoicism uh, tends to be negatively associated with quality of life. So the more stoical your attitude, the more likely it is you'll have a lower quality of life. A low quality of life tends to go hand in hand with a stoical attitude. Uh, those with a more stoical attitude are less likely to seek help, including psychological help, less likely to reach out to other people. All right, almost all our problems can be mediated or reduced by having strong connections with other people. And the example that just uh, jumps out at, at me, uh, first of all, is like computer and software struggles. All right, for almost every computer and software problem you have, there's somebody who can give you the answer so that you'll no longer be banging your head. I found it much better to spend $50, $100 an hour or more to get uh, computer help instead of spending hours to try to solve something myself. I spend 50 bucks and I get an answer in, in five minutes. Uh, also, try going for a walk without, without you know, earphones, without any external stimulation. And most people will find walking two miles on, on their own somewhat onerous but you will walk happily three miles with people that you enjoy. And that goes for just going through life in general, right? If you have other people in your life, going through life will usually be much more pleasant and pain will be reduced and you'll be much more stimulated. You'll have much more energy. The primary source of energy is not caffeine. It's not modafinil. It's not eating your vegetables. Your primary source of energy is your positive relations with other people, right? When you just say good morning to someone and it's reciprocated with, with a genuine smile, that will give you some energy. If you ask someone, how was your weekend? And they tell you a little bit and then you share a little bit about your weekend. 
even a stranger in an elevator, that will bump up your mood. All right, we primarily get our energy from getting on the same page with other people, creating some sort of shared reality, and then finding some sort of rhythm in our interactions with the other person. And out of that will come a bond, and out of every bond comes a shared ethic, a, a morality. And so having a series of positive interactions with other people as you go through your date, that far and away is going to be your biggest source of energy. I, I've been waking up typically between 3 and 4 a.m. for at least a year now. And when I get up at 3 or 4 a.m., I start the day with a cold shower, and then I start reading or listening to videos, usually of a most challenging nature. I try to do the most challenging part of my day as early on as possible. And what gives me the energy to do these challenging things is my connections with other people. So even though these people aren't usually in the same room as me at 4 a.m., it's the, it's the enticement that I will get to discuss these ideas or this knowledge that I've learned or talk about this approach. All right, when I'm reading a book, it's a solitary experience, but what gives me the energy to read is in large part my connection with other people and the opportunity to discuss what I'm reading with them. And so without energy, it's really hard to accomplish anything in life. And, and the best source of energy is other people. And stoicism, there's some benefits to it, but generally speaking, it, it's related to a lower quality of life and greater reluctance to seek out connection to other people, to seek help, including psychological help and 12-step help. Solve it. And once you start talking about how to solve it, the issue of apartheid, the issue of occupation comes front and center. And this causes enormous problems for the Israelis. So you want to ask yourself, what is the discourse going to look like moving forward once we get a ceasefire here? We are going to get a ceasefire at some point. Then the question is, what does it look like? Is, are the Americans really going to push hard for a two-state solution? What are the Chinese and the Russians going to do? What are the West Europeans and East Europeans going to do here? What are the Israelis going to do? Are, are they going to tolerate living uh, in a state where they dominate the Palestinians with the ever-present problem of an eruption, like a first intifada, a second intifada, an October 7th. Uh, so uh, the world the world has just been, the, the Israeli world has just been turned upside down. One cannot underestimate that. And by the way, if you look at Tom Friedman's column in the New York Times today, which I, I would suggest that people look at, you don't have to agree with a lot of his analysis, but his description of the situation in Israel is really quite stark. It, it, it's an Israel he's never seen before. And he makes it very clear that everybody there is really scared. You've had this profound change take place in Israel. And again, the question is, where does this all lead? I, I have to say, I had very little knowledge or experience of the Israeli media until this crisis. And actually, I've been rather impressed by the level of diversity and discussion that takes place there. Certainly more than happened. Yeah, there's, there's a wider discussion of uh, Israel and uh, Gaza and Hamas in Israeli news media than in American news media. I can't think of any other Middle Eastern country with nearly as much freedom of speech as Israel. And here in Britain. And uh, I have to say also, I find in that a sign of hope, actually. I get the sense that a lot of Israelis do not want to live in an apartheid garrison state, that they would be amenable to a solution. But maybe expecting something like that to happen soon is to ask too much. Perhaps you can start with smaller things. And, you know, we have this expression, I presume you have it in the US too, when you're in a hole, stop digging, maybe stop settlement expansion. I mean, that would perhaps ease the tensions, stop this violence that there is in the West Bank. 
stop these threats that are coming from or at least marginalize these people who are making all of these threats about, you know, the Temple Mount and all of that kind of thing, which apparently there has been going on. I mean, these would perhaps not be big steps towards a, 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 you know, a resolution of this crisis, but at least they would be steps of a kind. And that might provide you with some time and political space to start thinking forward about more substantive things. I have to say, I can't see any of that happening whilst Netanyahu remains prime minister, but perhaps these are the sort of things one should be focusing on at the moment, you know, uh, these more limited things, but these more achievable things. I just make two quick points, uh, Alexander. One is, I think, uh, given the recent events, October 7th and what's happened uh, since then, it's hard to imagine the Israelis being willing to accommodate the Palestinians in almost any way. I mean, they are just so angry and they're also scared. And when you're scared, uh, that creates an environment where it's hard to make any sort of concessions. That's point one. Point two is you do not want to underestimate how far to the right Israel has moved since you and I were young. Uh, and all the evidence is it's going to move further to the right as the number of ultra-Orthodox in the society increase over time. You know, for all the complaints that people have about Benjamin Netanyahu, and I fully understand those complaints, and by the way, if you go back to the Friedman column, he is railing against Netanyahu himself. But the point I would make is that in the context of the governing coalition in Israel today, he's not on the extreme end of the political spectrum. He's really kind of in the middle. Uh, and uh, one could argue that if you get rid of him, whoever replaces him would be even more hardline. And I would argue that, you know, 5, 10, 15 years out, uh, Israeli prime ministers will probably be uh, to the right uh, of Benjamin Netanyahu today. Okay, let's check in with uh, Frame Game Radio. Mike, uh, Mike Benz, right, he says, here is why Gavin Newsom is meeting with China today. It was a tweet from a few days ago. He's telling them California. That's a little exaggerated. Gavin Newsom selling California to China the same way Hunter Biden was selling Louisiana to China. Selling off the public treasures for a private buck. All right, let's uh, listen to Frame Game. Profit. That's kind of the theme of what I want to talk about today. Because it hit me this morning that there are three separate mega scandals happening around the Biden first family. Selling out American foreign policy for personal profit through Hunter is the Bagman. That I'm shocked it's not like exploding all over the internet today. Now, two of these stories were actually broken by Natalie Winters, I believe, this morning. At least that's when I saw it. Uh, but let me just talk about these, these three. The first one is obviously the Ukraine Burisma situation, um, which I've talked about many times. It's very much a story of Internet censorship. See, Burisma is a private gas company in Ukraine that there was a mega bet on around this grand Ukraine energy play that if the U.S. State Department, Defense Department, CIA, and then the U.K. and Brussels equivalents on the transatlantic side could pry open the eastern Ukrainian gas market and pry off Gazprom and then put in these Soros stakeholders in the energy sphere with their London and Wall Street backers and stakeholders, then it would be uh, basically a trillion dollar windfall profit uh, for, for nothing. If Well, not nothing exactly, because it cost the US taxpayers potentially hundreds of billions of dollars to pay for that war. But it turns out that Burisma's own Spocks were put in charge of internet censorship very early out the gate. So Burisma and the Atlantic Council signed a cooperation agreement for Atlantic Council to kick energy deal flow to Burisma just one day in January 2017 before Trump took office. And Trump's foreign policy of neutrality on Ukraine obviously threatened the daylights out of that. Uh, the Atlantic Council is not just a think tank. They have seven CIA directors currently serving on their board. Uh, they are basically a barometer for the intelligence community. They're funded by four different branches of the Defense Department, Army, Navy, um, Marines, and Air Force. They're also funded by the State Department, and they're funded by CIA cutouts like the National Endowment for Democracy. It is basically just an outside CIA, and they were the cheerleaders of this Ukraine, Grand Ukraine energy play. 
And they had, again, this formal partnership agreement with, with Burisma. They were put in charge of internet censorship for the 2020 elections. Okay, they were one of the four entities that were partnered with the Department of Homeland Security to censor your opinions about mail-in ballots. 22 million tweets. They co-labeled misinformation uh, just for questioning the efficacy of mail-in ballots. And then they ran the whole playbook back to censor COVID-19. Okay, so... Mike Benz is interesting. He frames things in a provocative way. He does not optimize for, for truth. So I'm both interested and sometimes repelled by what uh, Mike Benz has to say. Right. Uh, John Mearsheimer very much strikes me, and all three men on this panel strike me as men who optimize for truth. Hey, uh, so I, I'm, I'm very pessimistic. I hope I'm wrong. I hope I'm dead wrong, but uh, I, I just don't see much hope here. Mm. I thought, uh, yeah, we could uh, switch gears a bit uh, to to Ukraine because, uh, um, well, how, how would you see the Ukraine war being impacted by the uh, war between Israel and Palestine? I guess. John Mishaim has an incredible track record with regard to Ukraine. Like he, in around 1991, he wrote an article saying that Ukraine should not give up its nuclear weapons because it would then render itself vulnerable to Russian invasion. He was right then. And then he started talking about uh, 10 years ago, about how the U.S. was precipitating Ukraine's problems by trying to bring it essentially de facto into NATO and that this would antagonize Russia. By marching NATO towards the borders of Russia, it was making Russia feel threatened and therefore driving Russia into the arms of America's greatest enemy, which is China. So Mishaim has a long, impressive track record in many areas, but in particular, with regard to Ukraine and Russia. Yes, obviously in this case, it appears that the United States uh, have been forced to make priorities and uh, the priority is now quite clear that uh, Ukraine must take a back seat uh, to uh, Israel in terms of uh, uh, offering aid. But uh, but I don't think this has been, this uh, this isn't the real variable which changed the whole thing. I think it was just, it happened at a very awkward time because I think the, if, if not the collapse, the, the decline of, of Ukraine has been building up for some time. And uh, as we've begun discussing, I think uh, the media seems to have changed in the West dramatically over the past two weeks. Suddenly, you know, left and right, we have uh, articles recognizing that, uh, you know, Ukrainians are losing. Uh, just now they announced they would start uh, mobilizing women because there's no more men to fill the ranks. And uh, uh, the weapons are running out. Uh, they can't really do any more offensives. You have internal political splits. Uh, the Russians are making uh, gains. So there are a lot of people on the left who I enjoy following, and I think they often make some great points. Uh, one of them is Joel Swanson, who, to the best of my knowledge, is a graduate student at the University of Chicago. Here he tweets, Trump specifically called out Marxists and communists, called the vermin that he would root out, and the New York Times sanitized it to liberals. This is the kind of language that often precedes mass graves, and the press is normalizing it. Uh, does calling people vermin often precede mass graves? No, it doesn't often precede mass graves. Okay, he's a PhD candidate in the history of uh, Judaism. Uh, he's a left-wing Jewish intellectual who is frequently quite interesting, but this is a very common talking point on the left that uh, calling your opponents nasty names, such as vermin, often precedes mass graves. And I think any empirical observation would show you 100,000 examples of where calling your opponents the equivalent of vermin has not led to mass graves, and maybe one example in 100,000 where it does. So Ashkenazi Jews, for example, are often quite verbally assertive, even aggressive, and sometimes hyperbolic and sometimes overstate their case, but they rarely commit murder, right? 
you get mass murder, you get genocide when there is a dramatic, intense, and urgent conflict of interests that, uh, for which there, there's no immediate compromise available, right? Mass murder, mass genocide is not primarily generated by the use of nasty words, right? The, all of us, down deep, have a part of ourselves that regards those who are sufficiently different from us as not fully human. And we can repress this, and we can deny this, and we can suppress this, and we can try to hold it down and not express this, but it's there. It's just part of the human condition that when someone is sufficiently different from us and we are under sufficient amounts of, of stress, there will be a part of us that regards the other as not fully human. So there is almost a universal human tendency to dismiss people who are different from you. So for people on the liberal end of the spectrum and the left-wing end of the spectrum, this dismissal will often be on the basis of uh, political belief, so that conservatives are not fully human, that uh, there's something wrong with their brains and there's something primitive about them and medieval about them. And then for people on the right, they will often uh, dismiss as not fully human those of a different religion or racial group than themselves. But whether you go to the left or the right, there is a universal human tendency to diminish the humanity of those who are sufficiently different from them. But this does not, you know, primarily lead to mass murder, right? Occasionally, there is a connection between this and horrible behavior. But uh, horrible things like genocide occur when there is a pressing conflict of interest that is not easily compromised away. Uh, especially around Avdivka, but also other areas. I just wonder, how, how do you see since the last time we spoke, what, what, what is the direction of Ukraine here? Well, I listen religiously to Alexander every day. And, uh... So when I was growing up, the F-A-G word, a word that I learned at age 11 when I moved to California, because that word meant a cigarette in Australia where I grew up. But after age 11, when I moved to California, F-A-G was the most commonly used slur. And I picked it up. And I would sometimes scream it at people. Uh, but it would never, ever have occurred to me, like even at my worst, to inflict um, like any kind of you know, physical pain on someone who was homosexual, right? It was just a slur that I picked up, but it would never have occurred to me or to anyone that I knew growing up to then you know, go beat someone up for, for being gay. Like nobody I know knew growing up would you know, ever participate in and in any sort of like physical gay bashing right? that, that never occurred in any social circle of which I was a part. And yet FAG was the most commonly used slur from, I don't know, from about 1977 when I came to California at age 11, probably until about uh, 1983, 84. But there, there was zero connection between that and any gay bashing in any social circle of which I was aware growing up. I've learned from him that uh, the uh, Russians were winning in Ukraine uh, for a long time before October 7th. Uh, the Ukrainians are in deep trouble. Uh, this is before October 7th. Uh, and it was only a matter of time before the Russians effectively won the war. We can discuss what victory looked like, but the Russians... Uh... Yeah, and again, like spastic and retard. Uh, I'm, I'm allowed to say the R-E-T 
ARD. All right, very common put downs that I learned growing up, and I think I use them too. But it was never accompanied by any kind of like physical violence against people with disabilities. I mean, the very people who would throw around these slurs would sometimes, you know, go out of their way to be helpful to those with with disabilities who are struggling with something. People are complicated. Right? Some of the people who saved Jews right during the Holocaust, uh, they were they held what you know might be called anti-Semitic views. Right? People, you know, will will throw off all sorts of nasty slurs. It it usually does not mean that they are going to behave that way. Let's go back to Mishimer and company. We're destined to win the war for reasons we three all know well. Uh, I think, however, it's quite clear that October 7th has sped up the process uh, because it's quite clear that the United States cares more about the Middle East, cares more about Israel, to be explicit, than it cares about Eastern Europe and Ukraine. Uh, and given that the Americans are aware that the Ukrainians are not going to win, it doesn't make sense to prioritize Ukraine over the Middle East. So I think what's going to happen here is the Americans are going to go to great lengths uh, to try and get some sort of negotiated settlement uh, in the near future. So I grew up in an overwhelmingly Protestant world, both in Australia and then Manchester, England, and then the Napa Valley and uh, Auburn, which is above Sacramento in Northern California. And I don't recall any conversations that primarily centered around Jews, let alone any Jew bashing. So... I heard a lot of Catholic bashing in my overwhelmingly Protestant upbringing. I didn't hear virtually any Jew bashing. And to the extent I heard comments about Israel, they're overwhelmingly pro-Israel. Future. Uh, and they're not going to give uh, the Ukrainians. When was I in Manchester? So my father did his second PhD at Manchester University. So he did his first PhD at Michigan State University in rhetoric in something like 1958-59, which was seven years before I was born in 1966. And then he did his second PhD. So first PhD was in the rhetoric of the Apostle Paul. I read his thesis and was not impressed with it. Then his second thesis was in eschatology. I think it was explaining uh, book of Daniel chapter 8, 14. So Daniel 8, 14. Let me... Okay, so, and, and he said unto me, unto 22,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. So I think Rashi interpreted this on a year-day basis. And so 2,300 days from 456 BC, I think approximates 1844. So there was a movement uh, among Protestants in America in particular that uh, the end of the world was coming after 2,300 years from 456 when the sanctuary was cleansed and rebuilt in Jerusalem. And it was called the, the Millerite Awakening. And so many people sold all their property. And on Yom Kippur, 1844, they gathered in fields, waited for Jesus to come back. That did not happen. But that movement gave birth to the Seventh-day Adventist Church because when Jesus did not come back, many people study the Bible and try to figure out why Jesus did not come back. And they decided that it was, they found a verse, I think, in Jeremiah, that if all Israel would just keep the Sabbath, then the Messiah would come. And so that's how you got the Seventh-day Adventist part of Seventh-day Adventist. So Seventh-day means that these are Protestant Christians who keep the Seventh-day Sabbath from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. 
and the advent means the imminent coming of Jesus Christ. So we lived in Manchester, England, while my dad was getting his PhD under Bible scholar F.F. Bruce between 1970 and 71. My dad got each of his PhDs in early 18 months. He developed the habit of rising at 4 a.m. So I'm a lot like my dad and putting in you know, a few hours on his thesis before he would do classwork and uh, got both of his PhDs done in, in record time, but uh, damaged his health. And this this lifelong habit of getting up at 4 a.m. definitely did not uh, serve him. I just remember li- li- life in Manchester is, is quite cold in the, in the winters compared to what I was used to in Australia. So the resources, both in terms of money and in terms of weaponry, that they had promised them earlier. Uh, so the Ukrainians, who were doomed before October 7th, uh, are surely doomed now. Mm. Be- and the chat says, Hasidic Jews treated me very badly, made me dislike them. I was totally oblivious to Jews till that point. Yeah, most people are going to react to Jews or to blacks or to you know, any group who's different from them on the basis of how members of that group treat them. And the more strongly you identify with your in-group, usually the less equipped you'll be and the less inclined you'll be to develop good relations with out-groups. So Hasidic Jews, by definition, are strongly identifying with their in-group. All their important relationships are with their in-group. Uh, Non-Jews are you know, definitionally members of out-groups and interactions with them are primarily for instrumental reasons. And so anyone with this you know, strong, strongly identifying in-group mentality is just less equipped to get along well with members of our group. So you'll see similar problems with, say, Jehovah's Witnesses or Seventh-day Adventists. Seventh-day Adventists are not at all popular in Australia because uh, most Seventh-day Adventists have a very strong in-group identity. And so that makes them less equipped to get along with members of our groups. How well is understood is it in the United States that this is actually a crisis, the Ukraine crisis, unlike the Middle East? The Middle East crisis is all but intractable. The Ukraine crisis could have been avoided entirely and can still be solved. You can actually find a way forward to bring the whole thing under control. You don't need to make concessions to the Russians that would impact on the core interests of the United States. You're not going to see a collapse of the American position anywhere in the world if you negotiate a resolution of this crisis with the Russians. Is the, does, this, does this understood within the administration? Because one of the problems, again, is that they seem to me to have got themselves trapped by this formula that, you know, you don't do anything without Ukraine, which shifts the burden for negotiation on the Ukrainians themselves, who are going to find this very difficult. Whereas the US could itself start talking to the Russians about this problem. And that probably would lead to an outcome, a positive outcome here. Well, I want to make a quick statement, and then I want to ask you a question. Yeah. Uh, delusional thinking about Ukraine in the U.S. government and in the foreign policy establishment has been quite profound for a long period of time. And it remains the case to a large extent. I mean, you occasionally see evidence that people understand, especially in the media, that Ukraine is in deep trouble. But nevertheless, you still see lots of pieces where people are talking about Ukraine ultimately prevailing and all we have to do is this or that and it will rectify the situation. Uh, So I would just say to you, you don't want to place too much hope in the American government understanding the basic facts of life and trying to fix this problem as best we can. But my question to you, Alexander, is what is the solution here? You know, how do you shut this one down in a meaningful way? I I can tell a story about how you get a frozen conflict that could uh, uh, turn into a hot conflict again. How do you get a general peace agreement here? What does it look like so that this problem is basically put to bed? Well, 
it's quite interesting because Putin actually made some straight, he made, he made some comments about Ukraine very recently. There was an um, event that took place on the 4th of November, which is a public holiday in Russia. He met various people from civil society groups. And then he went off, as he often does, on a tangent talking about Ukraine and the conflict. And he also talked about the history. He always brings it. So looking at an article here in The Atlantic from 2017, why do Americans smile so much? And it notes that a country's level of instability might be one reason why people who seem happy for no reason are considered foolish. So when a stranger on the street smiles at you, this is how one Reddit user on Finland put it, when a stranger on the street smiles at you, A, you assume he is drunk. B, you assume he is insane. C, he's an American. <laughs> so apparently countries with lots of immigration have historically relied more on nonverbal communication. Thus, people might smile more. So countries like Canada and the United States and a lot of other highly diverse countries tend to smile a lot, while homogeneous countries such as China and Zimbabwe don't tend to smile so much. So when there are lots of immigrants around, particularly if you can't speak the same language, you might have to smile more to build trust and cooperation since you don't all speak the same language. So in countries with more immigrants, people smile to bond socially. In less diverse nations, smiles are a sign that someone wants to be a close friend of yours. So in countries that are more uniform, people are more likely to smile to show that they are superior to one another. So countries without significant influxes of outsiders tend to be more hierarchical and nonverbal communication helps to maintain these delicate power structures. So Americans smile a lot because our Swedish forefathers wanted to befriend their Italian neighbors, but they couldn't figure out how to pronounce Italian words. So why do Americans smile with such wide grins? Like, why is it? Like, why, do they, why do Americans have such big grins? Why are Americans always smiling? A few days in rainy England will make the American change his ways. I don't know. So many Americans tend to be Anglophiles that we just love you know, everything English except the weather. I mean, you you step on someone's toes in the tube, in the subway in, in London, and then the English will say, I'm sorry to you. Right? Americans also value high energy, happy feelings more than other people. Yeah. So... I listened to this teaching company course on American values, and I was kind of skeptical that there were such things as American values, but it said that uh, pragmatism, very much an American value, that uh, you know, we can overcome anything, that we can you know, figure out an answer. So uh, Europe and Australia are much more fatalistic than America. There is you know, a distinct American value of optimism, I find. And there is a veneration for success and entrepreneurship that is, is much higher in the United States than any other country of which I'm aware. In Australia and in much of Europe, there's much more of a tall poppy syndrome where you kind of mock people who achieve great success. But uh, America seems to be a highly individualist country that seems to venerate people who achieve great things. And there is a optimistic kind of can-do pragmatic entrepreneurial bent to americans that uh, is unique self history he's a very historically minded person but if you sort of took it aside looked at what he was saying it seemed to me that he was basically setting out 
the basis for a negotiating a negotiating position. And I want to say clearly, a negotiating position. I'm not suggesting that he's talking here about the eventual outcome or the outcome that he would accept. But he made some points. He said, first of all, there are areas of Ukraine which have always been historically Russian. The uh, Bolsheviks created this bigger Ukraine. These areas which are Russian, well, some of them, most of them are returning to the homeland. And my impression was that if Ukraine were to accept the four regions plus Crimea as part of Russia, that would settle the problem completely as far as he was concerned. He has some concerns about other cities. He talked about cities in Ukraine, in southern, in southern Ukraine especially, which were created by Catherine the Great, which are... Great uh, line in the chat. America went from a high-trust society to a low-trust society in my lifetime. Well, there are still vast was. In fact, most areas, most counties in the United States are still high-trust. So country areas are high-trust in the United States... Uh, places in Utah, Salt Lake City, high trust areas. The closer you get to the Canadian border, right, the more high trust societies you find in the United States. But in our biggest cities, and I particularly noticed this coming back from Australia and then flying into LAX, how immediately you had a much more defensive attitude, much more skeptical attitude towards people around me than I did, say, in Australia. So I'm not sure why exactly school test scores improve so much the closer you get to Canada. The late Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan uh, noticed this. And why is there more, more um, high trust the closer you get to the Canadian border? And why is it that certain football players drop the ball before the end zone there's some kind of pattern here that i'm not that i'm not quite figuring it out so in the washington versus utah game yesterday a great game and a washington player makes an interception he runs got a free path to the end zone and then two yards before the end zone he drops the ball deliberately just tosses it away now you may say 40 have you not being so eager for release that you too have let go early. And yeah, I, I guess there have been times where I too have been so eager for release that I've let the ball go early. But I have made a scientific study of this phenomenon of dropping the ball before the end zone. And there's some, there's some kind of pattern here that I'm noticing among the players who do this. And I just can't quite put my finger on it. I remember Deshaun Jackson, I think, did this in high school, did it in college, and did it multiple times in the National Football League. And I notice that compared to the 50s, 60s, and 70s, celebrations are much more exuberant in all of our major sports in America now. And so people are so eager to celebrate, and people are so eager to say, look at me, look at me. And people are it seems like professional athletes are much more me-focused than team-focused over the past uh, three or four decades. Not quite sure why that is and why people are just so eager for that release before they cross the goal line. That there's there's some there's some there's something going on here. There's some pattern, but I just can't quite put my finger on it. Russian cities. So that would include presumably Odessa, 
but he wasn't talking about uniting those regions with Russia. So I can see that he was is probably thinking about some kind of protections for Russians there, some kind of role for Russians there. Then he also talked about Ukraine itself, the core region of Ukraine. And he went all the way back to the 17th century. He talked about how at that time it consisted of an area in, around Kiev, Chernigov, Zhitomir. He seemed to accept that that is distinct in some fashion. He made it absolutely clear, though, that this part of Ukraine, this central region, certainly under no circumstances can be part of NATO. And um, I got the impression that basically he doesn't think that you, you know, he doesn't want to see Ukraine in NATO. But one thing that also struck me about the comments that he made was that he said absolutely nothing about the Western regions of Ukraine, the Habsburg provinces, places around Wolf. He doesn't seem to have any interest in those at all. And also, he said nothing about sanctions. Now, he avoids talking about sanctions altogether, but he was talking. Oh, another thing I noticed when I came to America is how many people had braces. So nobody I knew in, in Australia had braces. Like, I, I've never had, had braces. But it seemed like about 40% of my classmates had braces. But Americans overwhelmingly spent far more on their teeth and on repairing and beautifying their teeth than Australians and, and Europeans. So maybe because they spend so much money on their teeth, they are more interested in showing them off. Now, my father had dental problems his entire life. Why? Because my father so wanted to maximize his time that when he was biking along, he would read a book. And one day, you'll be shocked to learn that as he was biking along, he hit a ditch and went flying off his bike and hit his teeth. And as a result, he had horrible teeth problems and painful surgery for the next 70 years of his life. So word to the wise, don't read books while you're biking and don't text when you're, when you're driving. I remember about six years before he died, my father had to go in for or a few years before he died, had to go in, I think, and have all his teeth removed. And someone who was close to him uh, said, oh, you know, your father's at the end here. Like I was being prepared that he was, he was dying because of such a severe operation, a lifetime of, you know, dental problems and incredible, incredible levels of pain all precipitated by riding a bike and reading a book at the same time. Not a great idea. Talking here about how he was talking about how the conflict in Ukraine might evolve. So I don't think that he would be looking for any kind of sanctions relief. I think he understands that that would be impossible to get from the United States. I don't think he feels that that's needed. I think he's prepared to let Western Ukraine go its own way completely. Remember how we heard with the onset of the Ukraine war, how American and European sanctions were going to cripple Russia? just drive Russia to its knees, just destroy the Russian economy. Uh, didn't work out that way. I think that for the central regions of Ukraine. The, the only example that I can think of off the top of my head as sanctions working is with regard to South Africa. And I don't think it was primarily the sanctions. I think South Africa's you know, minority population simply lost the will to continue to rule and they use the sanctions as an excuse. But can you think of any other examples where sanctions have compelled uh, regime change? 
I mean, Iran has been heavily sanctioned, but it hasn't seemed to have changed Iranian behavior. Iraq under Saddam Hussein was heavily sanctioned, possibly causing tens of thousands, possibly hundreds of thousands of, of deaths of, of children and babies because of these sanctions. The American Secretary of State at the time, Madeleine Albright, was asked, was it worth keeping these sanctions on Saddam Hussein's Iraq, even if it cost the lives of 500,000 babies? And she said, yes. So, so much for democracies in general, and America in particular being so much more moral about how they do their foreign policy. He, as I said, certainly doesn't want to see them in NATO, and that is, I think, for him, an absolute red line. So I think... Do, do we need to floss our teeth? I know what dentists emphasize flossing your teeth, and I would diligently floss my teeth every day for almost all my life. And then about uh, three years ago, I read an article saying that it's not necessary to floss your teeth, and I basically haven't flossed my teeth since. But uh, dentists seem to have the loosest moral code of any professional group. Like dentists will prescribe all sorts of unnecessary surgery and all sorts of unnecessary procedures. I don't know if you've had those kind of bad experiences with dentists, but it's a racket. I think more than any other professional group of which I'm aware, one has to be skeptical of what uh, dentists say. So according to this one article I read, there really isn't a strong case for flossing. I'm not saying that's true. I'm just saying I used to floss every day. I read one article about three years ago, and uh, I've largely, largely given up on it. There is a basis for a discussion here, not an easy one. And he didn't talk. And I thought, found this again interesting. He didn't talk this time about reopening the whole security situation in Europe, which he has done in the past. Perhaps over the course of negotiations, he might want to have some kind of strategic dialogue with the United States. The Russians have recently spoken about the need to restart a strategic dialogue with the United States, but they say they can only happen once the war in Ukraine ends. So I think there is a... So one thing I started doing... I started doing a coconut oil pour. That's what it's called. I just put a, a mouth, a spoonful of coconut oil in my mouth. And I, I read about this. And then who's that guy who, was, who used to write books like Bang Poland and then became a, a trad Christian? So he, he recommended doing this. So I, I would like swill all the, the coconut oil around in my mouth when I take a shower and then apply it to certain parts of my body where I don't want any chafing. And I think that's an, my anecdotal impression is that that's an excellent uh, practice for, for good oral hygiene. I don't know how much evidence there is for it, but uh, it's, it's a habit I've bought into. And so women seem to have much more sensitive sense of, of smell than guys. I've got very little sense of smell, but uh, when I've gone out on dates, uh, women could, pick up the the coconut smell because I would apply it to certain parts of my anatomy that are more vulnerable to chafing than other parts. And I learned this from, is it Vosch? Vosch? Who wrote, who wrote the book, uh, like Bang Poland book? Uh, I'm not, not, I'm not endorsing this guy, but uh, how to make love with, oh, Dariush Oh, Roosh V. Roosh V, I think, recommends uh, the coconut uh, oil, Paul. Room. You know, if people are pragmatic and realistic and understand that the Russians, you know, are winning the war, I, I, I think that there is room for some kind of discussion. And I think that what Putin wants, what I think not just Putin, 
but the Russian leadership collectively want is a stable situation on their Western borders. They no longer think that they can develop a productive relationship with the Western European countries. I think that's become um, clear. But Putin also said, and this is an interesting comment that he made very recently, he said that with the Europeans, for the moment, we... Uh, one of the closest ways to bond people and nations is to have a common enemy. And Russia has every reason in the world to regard China as its enemy. It's just that U.S. foreign policy has been so self-defeating over the past few years, it's driven Russia into the hands of China. But it wouldn't take a whole heck of a lot for Russia and the United States to recognize that they shared a common enemy in China. And that might uh, help Russia and the U.S. develop a more working relationship. We can't have a real dialogue with them. They lack agency. They have decided what they want. But with the United States, we can get back into discussion eventually. So he seems to be thinking that some kind of a dialogue with the United States would work in Russian interests and can be resumed and can move forward productively. But all of the previous plans... I really like snarky, sarcastic women. Not many women are, you know, like sarcasm and irony. But I did date this one uh, Persian woman who was very sarcastic. And I, I think I showed her my first book, uh, History of X, 100 Years of Sex and Film, the same time I was talking to her all about the, the glories of God and Judaism. And she said to me, oh, yeah, so, you know, God told you to go out and write this book. And on our first date, we, we went out to a movie and then I brought her back to my place and I offered her some chewing gum. And she said, why are you offering me chewing gum? I'm not going to make out with you. And like a fool, I, I stopped dating this woman because I'd listened to Dennis Prager and, and Prager said, you should ask your prospective dates, you know, how much TV they watch. And so I'd asked her and she said, oh, you know, eight hours a day. But upon reflection, I realized she was being sarcastic. But I took it seriously. I thought, oh, you know, I can't date someone who watches eight hours of TV a day, even though she was beautiful. And even though I loved her sarcastic sense of humor, I, I took the, the Pragerism too seriously. And I thought, I, I can't, can't date someone who watches so much TV. I mean, that, that's just shallow. But uh, much, if not most, of the advice that I took from Dennis Prager, I did not find really served me. Of, you know, establishing gas pipelines, all those kinds of things to the Europeans. I think this has been part to one side. But let me just push you just a bit on this. Yeah. I think what you're saying is that the only possible deal here is the Russians get to keep the four oblasts they've now annexed, yes. plus Crimea. Yes. And in return, you get a genuinely neutral Ukraine. It yes. breaks all ties with NATO. And I would imagine even the EU. I think so. There's a military dimension inside the EU. Okay. I agree with you. I think if you want to get a deal now, that's the deal. And I think there's a reasonably good chance you could get that. But here's the question I have for you. Do you think that the Americans and the Ukrainians would accept that deal? Well, this is, a, this is the great question. I don't think the Ukrainians at the moment are capable of accepting a deal like that. And that's why I said, I, I think that saying all the time that, you know, we're not going to do anything without the Ukrainians, the Ukrainians must take the lead in these negotiations, is to, is to take you nowhere at all. Because the Ukrainian government, the Ukrainian political system, cannot negotiate on this basis. It's not that there aren't people in Ukraine, even within the government, who don't see the way that the situation is shaping out and who might not want to negotiate along these lines. But the problem is that the system, the political system in Kiev is now so fragmented and there are so many people who are still so dogmatic, ideologically opposed to these kind of concepts and who would probably, by the way, even prefer an outright defeat 
to a compromise of this nature, which would compromise their own vision of Ukraine. And, you know, this isn't something one should underestimate. I don't think the Ukrainians are capable of doing this. But if the Americans start... Okay, let's take a, a healing break. Are you guys into detox clay powder? You just uh, mix a little in with, with water and uh, detox clay powder here. Just take just a little dab will do you. Mix it in with water. And uh, I was having some digestive issues know, about eight years ago. And someone recommended like two different types of dirt, I mean, clay powder to mix together. Right, mixing it all up. Nothing like a little detox clay powder here. Uh, just looks like muddy, muddy water. I think I. I think I get, see, um, I think I get, sorry about that. Uh, I, this may just be all in my head, but I think it gives me an energy boost. There's, I don't think there's any possible scientific basis for this. Mm. Mm. Got to try to spoon out the little bits of clay left at the bottom of my cup. But uh, the theory is that it binds to, you know, bad things and flushes them out of your, your body. So any of you um, experiment with detox clay powder, you know, there are various forms of clay and dirt. And, I mean, sanitized, you know, products, you know, healthy products that you can buy. Not not recommending it because you could obviously overdo it. And, uh, but uh, it seems to have a good effect and it, it gives me energy. And it gives me clarity. And so suddenly I'm seeing all sorts of patterns out there in the world that I didn't see before. And you know, my insights become more powerful. Uh, other question. So I, I read somewhere that if you take L-theanine with caffeine, that it makes the caffeine high last twice as long. So I'm not sure if there's any, any scientific basis for that. But I believe it. And because I believe it, I think it helps my caffeine high last twice as long. So I, I recently went about two weeks without any coffee, but I just had a cup of coffee this morning. Forgot to take my L-theanine with it. So it's uh, about 90 minutes later now. I'm hoping that there's still some caffeine in my system that can bond with the L-theanine and you know really help my, my caffeine high uh, last longer. So yeah, friends... Who come to my place? You've got an awful lot of supplements here, but it's really not an awful lot. It's just, you know, just some healthy grass-fed uh, beef organ capsules. Speak it, believe it, receive it, or hit it and quit it. Uh, reishi mushrooms. I was told that was good for acid reflux. Um, I needed to buy something to get my Amazon grocery delivery for free. So I just bought some time release B complex. Uh, that's, this is not a regular part of my routine. I just bought this on occasion. And then I like to take a gram of magnesium before bed. It seems to relax my muscles and to be good for sleep. So th those, these are the only supplements I take. pushing in this direction is they start holding discussions with the Russians quietly about this. And the, the time limit window is not great, by the way, because he did say other things which are more ominous as well. 
But if the Americans were to start broaching these ideas to the Russians, then I think that with the Americans, the Russians could move forward. Now, it would be complicated to persuade the Ukrainians to agree to all of this. But this isn't like Vietnam, where, you know, the Vietnamese, the North Vietnamese always saw South Vietnam as part of their country, which they wanted to take over. For the moment, that doesn't seem to be Putin's objective. He's not looking to take over the whole of Ukraine. And it would be very challenging. So honestly, I had a lifetime of horrible health, including decades when I was taking waterpole supplements. And especially none of the supplements seemed to do anything except for one, uh, two years ago, after seeing something on Amazon, I knew I needed to find a way to ingest meat because of this vegetarian diet I inherited. So within two weeks of taking six beef organ capsules a day, all my health problems disappeared. Like I was strong again and I was able to, you know, bike 10, 10 miles plus without feeling tired. I was able to start uh, working on pull-ups and it took me months to get to a place where I could even do one pull-up. So now I can do like three pull-ups at a time and maybe a little bit of cheating in there. And I'm doing so many pull-ups and, and weights that my shirts are getting much tighter on me. I can't even do pull-ups in my in my dress shirts anymore. Uh, so what the heck? What the heck? Challenging for Russia, as I think you've discussed it yourself. It'd be very challenging for the Russians to achieve that militarily anyway. So I think that there is a basis for a discussion between the United States and Russia. That's possible from the Russian side. The question is, and I, I can't speak here for the US. I haven't seen any sign that in the US people are thinking about this, at least not within the current administration. But I mean, perhaps there are others who might be. I mean, this is the this is the big question. Once let me just jump in here a second. Okay, what's going on with San Francisco? I mean, what the heck? What happened to all the homeless in San Francisco? They they, they seem to be gone. More on this, Christina. Hi, Arthel. San Francisco residents have been dealing with the out-of-control homelessness crisis there for years. Now, some of the streets left filthy by homeless encampments are finally getting a glam job. Since world leaders will be in town, Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom admitted it. I know folks say, oh, they're just cleaning up this place because all those fancy leaders are coming into town. Um, that's true. I'm so excited about showing this off to 21 fancy foreign leaders from around the world. The city gave areas a makeover ahead of the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Conference, which starts next week in San Francisco by clearing out sprawling homeless encampments that residents have had to dodge for years. Anytime you put on an event, by definition, you know, you have people over your house, you're going to clean up the house. You have 21 world leaders, you've got tens of thousands of people coming from all uh, around the globe. Uh, what an opportunity to showcase the world's most extraordinary place. San Francisco. But critics say Newsom seems to be showcasing that he doesn't want world leaders to see what a mess parts of San Francisco really is, including Chinese President Xi Jinping. When a genocidal communist dictator comes to town, the ideas of equity suddenly vanish and the streets get cleaned That's good up. Point. That's very weird. What kind of message does that send? It means California politicians like Gavin Newsom know San Francisco is an embarrassment and they don't care about the residents. They only care about impressing Xi Jinping. If it weren't so sad, it would actually be funny. 21 world leaders are expected to attend the conference in San Francisco. Yeah, I was trying to tell a, a friend the other day that San Francisco might be the most beautiful city in the world. And he said, what, really? He was an Aussie. He'd been to San Francisco. He certainly didn't think of it as uh, particularly 
beautiful. What do you think? Is San Francisco the most beautiful city in the world? Get another new story in here. $53 million, filling hotel rooms, bringing big business. And the city did tidy up for Dreamforce, but this cleanup is much more extensive. While San Francisco is in the spotlight for the Asia-Pacific Economic Conference, city leaders are making sure the city shines. Tourism is our business here in San Francisco, and we need to focus on making sure that the tourist dollars still come back. Caltrans repaving major roadways like the Harrison Street off-ramp from the I-80. BART doubling down by deep cleaning their stations overnight more often. The city had gotten a little bit dingy over time. Scrubbing and power washing is happening all over the city. Yeah, the bottom of my shoes look clean. Like. It's noticeable how clear the streets look and how few homeless encampments there are on major thoroughfares. Having been a longtime resident in the Bay Area, you just naturally start to wonder of like houseless folks being displaced. Public Works is installing decorative crosswalks in North Beach and Chinatown. And the Webster Street pedestrian bridge in Japantown was recently repainted. The Yerba Buena Gardens at the Moscone Center are decked out with new colorful landscaping and murals, paid for by the Clean California grant, just in time for the 20,000 high-profile CEOs and heads of state coming into town next week. Some people say this should be how it's always done. What about the people who are here year-round, you know, and like local, hardworking, working-class Bay Area folks? Others welcome the cleanup. Anything that brings in uh, a positive look on the city of San Francisco is great. We will continue to do everything we can to maintain cleanliness in our streets. And city officials are saying that there are no additional funds that are being allocated for beautification. Departments are just using existing budgets. They also say that those budgets are being moved so that they can focus on the areas where APEC is taking place. The summit is expected to start on Wednesday. And, of course, people will start coming into town over the weekend and early. Okay, San Francisco, the beautiful. I, I came to California, Northern California, to the Napa Valley in 19... 77, so had a lot of trips into San Francisco. Uh, Berkeley was, of course, weird and, and frightening, but uh, San Francisco, certainly a beautiful city. Okay, uh, on Friday, I did a deep dive on JF Garapi and uh, missing Mama JF, right? There's a show, The Dusty Smith Show, which has devoted itself to this story. Supremacist streamer, also one of the most popular people in the manosphere, uh, three days after his wife went missing, talking about cleaning his uh, house, sterilizing it, and doing renovation work. So welcome, guys, to a very special true crime episode of the Dusty Smith Show. Uh, you guys might, might not know this about me, but I love true crime. I've seen pretty much every episode of every true crime show ever made. Okay. <laughs> Those are, those are some powerful credentials. Hasn't told anybody about it. Uh, so, yeah. It I mean, it's weird that she goes missing and he doesn't tell anyone about it for four months. It's uh, looking very suspicious. So, uh, yesterday he put out a video explaining his side of the story. And I've never watched a video that made anybody seem more guilty in my entire life. All right, this is video, this particular video here by Dusty Smith was put out a month ago. I spent uh, most of last night watching videos about this, uh, mostly from him. And I thought I would come on a live stream and we could all deep dive this true crime case together and see what we think about it. So uh, thank you for joining me. Going to be an interesting show, I think. 
if you're in a true crime at all, or if you uh, are interested in this case at all. So you guys might remember, I have a history with this case, which I have a, which makes me have a little personal connection to it. Um, four years ago, I released this video. I showed it on my show last night. I'm not going to show it right now, the entire thing, because uh, most of the clips in this show we're going to watch in other formats uh, throughout the show. But I was concerned about J.F. Garapay's wife slash uh, girlfriend. He calls, he calls her his wife, so I'm going to call her uh, wife for the remainder of this program. Now, whether they're actually married or not doesn't matter, but what does seem apparent is they have two kids together, and uh, they consider each other married to each other. Uh, so I put out this video four years ago showing footage of her coming on live stream where he's talking to this guy, and she seems to be uh, mentally disturbed. And the way he's treating her made me concerned with her well-being, uh, wondering if her family knows where she is, if she's safe in the presence of uh, J.F. Garapay. Um, and uh, I try to bring attention to the situation. And now four years later, uh, she's missing, and there is a manhunt on for her. The police are very concerned. Her family is very concerned. Everybody is very concerned, except seemingly for uh, J.F. Garapay. So I've had multiple interactions, run-ins with uh, Garapay over the years. Um, he got his start on the Drunken Peasant Show, which you guys might remember I also have some connection to. I have a few. Uh, comment in, in the chat, at least, at least J.F. practices what he preached. He always said he was a nihilist atheist. He put it into practice, unlike many others who just claim to be. With drunken peasants for a long time, uh, drunken peasants decided to give uh, Garapay a platform uh, which popularized him. And then he joined with Andy Warski to create a white supremacist podcast. And I've had many public debates and private debates with Warski. We've been battling. Uh, so I have been trying to tear down these assholes since the very fucking beginning. And uh, it's depressing how popular he's gotten, how much of a fan base he's built up. Because if you look at his material, it's... Uh, not only is it white supremacy, but it's a lot of uh, woman hating. He has a star in the manosphere, and his audience hates women. You can read the comments on a lot of his videos, and they're so insane with it. They'll even warn each other not even to talk to women, because even talking to women can ruin your entire life. And as we watch videos from him, you'll see in his own words exactly how he feels about it. He uh, believes that women should really have the freedom that they have now, because they are not uh, smart enough or responsible enough to actually be free. So they should be under the thumb of a man. And um, they have too much liberty now. And things should go back to the old caveman days where you can just knock a girl in the head, I guess, and force her to do whatever you want to do. So the uh, woman hating, the controlling, and not only that, but his own ad admissions on being rejected and how that makes him feel. We're going to take a look at all this. Before I start, I just want to say everything I say here is speculation. I have no insider information about any of this other than what I'm about to show you. So this is all just a thought experiment, a little fun project. Where we can all uh, deep dive into this together and speculate about what we think might have happened uh, to Mama Garapay, which is what he called her. Now, she might turn up alive next week. I have no idea. If so, obviously, I'll update the record. I uh, will be honest about it. But for now, like I said, I have never seen anybody look more guilty. And even if he's not guilty of this, as we watch the videos, you'll realize that uh, if he didn't kill her, this is exactly the type of person that would kill her. Right. Having negative feelings about people who are different from you. So for women to have some negative feelings about men, men have some negative feelings about women no more natural to be expected. But when negative feelings about the opposite sex kind of dominate you, I can't see that that's adaptive. And I, I think this is a fair description that a large part of JF's audience does loathe women. If he didn't kill her, he's still a giant fucking piece of shit in every way. So it's interesting to examine the manosphere of what it's become and watch their content and see what they reward and gravitate towards. So, uh, Yep, here he is. Jeff Garfield was spotted, in his words, planting a potato. So that is a diss on his girlfriend, which many people think 
has mental disabilities. If you don't know who J.F. Garapé is, so basically, he's a biologist. But he quit doing biology because he kept getting accused of sexual harassment, having problems where he was working, and decided I guess he could make more money grifting and going on the drunken peasants and spreading white supremacy and stuff. He uh, had one interesting thing that happened, though, that it needs to be brought up. Other than the fact that he received $25,000 from Jeffrey Epstein, yes, true story. In 2014, Jeffrey Epstein sent him $25,000, if that's uh, any indication of his character. But he also had another uh, alleged interaction with a girl who was, by all accounts, mentally retarded. I know that's not politically correct to say, but whatever word you want to use, I'll read you what it says here. Uh, during the, uh, Let's read it through the Rational Wiki website, because the Rational Wiki website gives us several interesting points, like for the fact that he admits that he has been accused of sexual assault in court. Doesn't want and to also, eat. I eat only cheese in two days, only cheese. Because you did give me so, you give me so much cheese, GM? You're like a Neil deGrasse Tyson. Is it like a blood for No, no, no. You cannot accuse celebrities here of rape. This is the public space. No, no, you cannot defame anyone. This is what took place. These are the kinds of people that are. But we have to arrest. Is that Mama Jaya? I thought I heard something. So he keeps muting her and pushing her away in this clip because he's embarrassed of her, but she's having some kind of psychotic episode. Apparently she was abused in the past, and she believes the man that J.F. Garapé is talking to on the stream is the man who abused her. And so she keeps jumping in and accusing him of attacking her and trying to kill her. Obviously, there's something mentally wrong here, but instead of helping her, J.F. JF keeps pushing her away and um, not in any way trying to help her the way that I thought that she needed. This is the clip that I covered four years ago and uh, was trying to get somebody to maybe check in on her well-being. <laughs> yeah, I, had, I, had, I had to mute Mama Jeff because she was telling some mean things about no white guilt. I apologize. Mm. Uh, everyone who is a, who's a fan of the show knows that Mama Jeff has an uncontrollable and irrational hate of no white guilt. <laughs> and we don't hate her for it. It's just a brain spark that she has where she construes no white guilt as someone else. All right. Lawrence Forbes says, does Mama Jeff really have an issue with no white guilt or is she just fooling around? She has an actual issue. Need to go push her away. Don't, don't say anything violent. No, I won't. What do you have to say? No, I get seriously. You try to kill me again. Okay. And I'm fucking sick that you're fucking me with me. You always follow me everywhere. And, All right. and you say you want to make spiritual movement, but you fucking try to kill me for three years again. You're fucking psychopath, okay. man. Okay, so the, the answer to the super chat is that Mama Jeff mistakes no white guilt for someone who has committed acts of violence against her. So that's why you see her currently sad. So weird. Mama Jeff has been the victim of an act of violence. This was not by no white guilt at all. She is confused and because she is confused, she associates no white guilt with People again. are asking on the regular chat, is Mama JF okay? Yes, she is doing good. I don't know if she wants to come to say hi, but she is doing good. So no worries for Mama JF. Hey. Hello. Hey, I just want to say, no, I will never accept your apologies, okay? <laughs> what you did to me was so mean. And this guy is not a real person. He's doing shape-shifting. <laughs> and uh, he's a ghost. Don't believe him. He's not a real person. Okay. And he so, wants to kill me. Okay. So no white guilt is a ghost, uh, according to Mama JF. 
I will say as a journalist, I have a duty here not to allow defamation. And I will say that uh, the theory that no white guilt is a shape-shifting ghost is unsupported at the moment. He's saying no white guilt because that's what the guy calls himself. These are white supremacists. So all their names are generally associated with white supremacy in some way. In my view. All right, you, we have a question for Mama JF coming on the super chat. K Max McDonald says, Mama Jeff, what is your background? What country do you derive your ethnic heritage from? Uh, okay, I can answer that. Okay, but before, uh, I had um, a bad life, but then after I discovered GF, then... So she said, I can't really talk about that. I had a bad life, but then after I discovered JF... I started to look at GF every day. I was always looking at GF. I became crazy. I said, I... Started looking at JF every day. I was obsessed with JF. I became crazy. I lost everything I had. I lost my job, my family. I quit school. I lost everything. I was just looking at JF all the time. I was always crazy. And then after I wrote to him, I said, JF, I want to take your dick. <laughs> and then you told me. <laughs> and that's my background. You, you, left, you lost your job because you were addicted. I lost everything. You lost everything, everything because you were addicted job. to my shows. <laughs> I was just looking at your show all the time. Even I had a, a job and I, w I was going to hide in the bathroom to listen to your show and I was, <laughs> then my boss said why you always disappear for 10 minutes <laughs> then he fired me I lost everything my family my friends everything because I was just looking at GF show all the time <laughs> you've never told me that <laughs> yeah wow that is some dedicated fan right here <laughs> that has anything to do with me being on the show I'm due four days a week plus not with the flat earth thing that is how the agreement was that is how See, Steve McRae was interested in the flat earth, which is very naive and beautiful. Hello, Mama Jeff. Oh, you took your shower? Yeah, but sleeping. Yeah, so... A-L-O-A-I-U. Oh, yeah. <laughs> she's a big fan of AIU. Yeah, they're big fans of AIU, of course, because they're white supremacists. But anyway, somebody said maybe she's just got an accident that makes her sound mentally off, maybe. But the things she's saying are also very uh, suspect that she has mental deficiencies and also has past history of uh, attracting such women. But I have no idea. She's actually commented before, and this is her words. I I'm not being mean by saying this. She said, I'm not retarded. I'm just French. So take that uh, as you will. So now she's missing. She's been missing for four months. Uh, the police put out a statement that uh, they are looking for her, and they're very concerned. He put out a statement, too. But first, the police. Missing person, help. Specific narrative. And it's interesting because basically... Even though he's not being interviewed by the cops here, he's trying to get out his narrative. He's trying to tell his side of the story that he wants the cops to believe and and the public as well. And so if you ever watch any of these uh, true crime YouTube shows, a lot of times they're just videos of like the interrogations of people, like two hour interrogation and hundreds of thousands of views. And basically this is like if he was being interrogated by the cops, the, his side of the story without the cops actually being involved here. So uh, here is... Uh, also, I guess I'll play this short clip. Now, this is the clip that they put out to back up his claim that maybe she just... Uh, so his story is this, folks. And believe me, I'm going to show you. But his story is this. This woman is somehow some kind of James Bond-like character in her ability to go off the grid, change her identity, and disappear without anybody finding her. Right. How... How likely is it that that's true? That... Uh... Mama JF is a James Bond-like character with the ability to just disappear and to cross you know, international borders without a passport, right? Much of JF Garupi's story does not make sense. And in, in, in this way, she's a super genius. And he, 
even though she has two kids with him, she just up and decided, hey, I'm going to leave my kids behind. I'm never going to contact any of you guys again. And I am taking some camping equipment, and I'm just going to go out into the world and camp. And I want you, JF, to go drive. Right. That, that does not ring true. I mean, what kind of woman says that or, or does that? Got me off somewhere. He's like, I did. I took the wife, uh, my wife and the mother of my two children. I just went and dropped her off somewhere with camping supplies, no credit card or anything. And she disappeared off the face of the earth. But that's to be expected because she's some kind of. Yeah. Is she, is she Jason Bourne? Does she have Jason Bourne abilities? Or is that a suspicious story? Right. Out of, out of those two possibilities, which one is more likely? Traveling genius where she can just disappear off the grid in a heartbeat and, and knows how to change her identity if she wants to and not be found. So nobody should be surprised by that. This is literally his story that he's telling. And then as soon as she disappears, he cleans his entire place, remodels it, even says that he sterilized it. So very, very suspicious. But this is the clip they put out to bolster his claim that she's some kind of a super spy genius who can change her identity. Now, to me, this clip doesn't show that. Uh, she talks about before she met Jeff Garpe being homeless and searching in the trash for food, which doesn't make it seem like she's some kind of survival expert in any way. But uh, I just want to play this clip for complete honesty. People at the right time. And also I was uh, looking in the garbage for some food or I was playing my violin to get money. And to sleep, I would find a little hole to sleep in every day. <laughs> but often I just made friends who just invite me to sleep, so that was easy. Uh, so if you want a little resume of what I did in my travel, I can tell you, okay? Um, okay, so first I went to France. But that was just because the little airplane ticket was so cheap. People at the right time. So... That was her claim. And you might uh, remember when a clip I just played where she said she was obsessed with him and sucking his dick and stuff. She said that she left her family, her job, everything. So it seemed like at least before he met her, she wasn't some kind of super spy genius uh, changing her identity and, and traveling around, which is uh, his entire defense here. So we're going to go ahead. Uh, uh, yeah, also, just in case you didn't uh, believe me, they made a video talking about the, the fact that she's pregnant. And most people who knew her came out and said, yes, they had two kids together who apparently she just abandoned, disappeared off the face of the earth, never wanting to contact her family again which, yes, is incredibly, incredibly suspicious. So this is the video he put out yesterday explaining why he hasn't mentioned that she's been missing for four months and why he doesn't really care and how the police have been uh, contacting him every single day. It's 36 minutes long. Like I said, it's going to be a deep dive. And we're going to view this from the point of view that he's guilty and examine why he might be saying what he's saying. And then uh, after this is another video I'm going to play. So we're going to do this for like, uh, it's at least 90 minutes of clips. So uh, buckle in. Here we go. Here's this video from yesterday. Something. Uh, personal that I'm forced to talk about at this point. It's uh, I've been wanting to keep it relatively calmer and sure. less. Uh... So Jean-Francois Garapi has associated himself with a marginalized movement, uh, European nationalism, and very smart, disciplined, capable people can associate themselves or flirt with, or investigate marginalized movements without destroying themselves, but. When you combine marginalized people like Mama JF with a marginalized movement, then you get a great deal of trouble. All right. Uh, capable, smart, disciplined person, right? He can engage in all sorts of activities that somebody living on the edge can't do, right? Someone with a high IQ can engage in all sorts of activities that would very well end life for people with a lower IQ.
I mean, Adam Smith made this point in his 1776 classic work, The Wealth of Nations, that the middle class can indulge in all sorts of vices, such as you know fornication, uh, getting drunk, that would very likely prove absolutely ruinous for someone of a lower class and lower intelligence. Less public, but uh, I've been forced by the by the various events because people have discovered about it, and so I might as well talk about it. Yeah, because the police put out a bolo. Be on the lookout for her. Her family is scared to death. Everybody's looking for her. So yeah, you need to talk about it, JF. Instead of letting rumors develop and all of the uh, all of the messy information that can step uh, that can stem from it. Um, so yeah, it's the disappearance of Mama JF. Mama JF has been disappearing in the sense of not leaving, uh, not leaving any contact, not leaving information about where she was. Uh, and I titled my episode, The Cost of Liberty, because... Right. How many people just, how many women, right, just go off the grid? It's not a typical feminine thing to do. I didn't want any of this. I'm just a family guy, and I've always been wanting to provide and secure for people around me. Uh, but there is one thing I cannot do in our society. I cannot stop you from doing crazy stuff. Uh, I cannot stop you from exposing yourself to risks when you say the words, I want to do it. When, when you claim your own liberty, you are on your own and I cannot do anything. Yeah, one of his entire points is that women have too much liberty. Maybe they should have too, this much liberty because they make bad decisions and they make themselves unsafe. And we need to go back to the other. Okay, this is uh, part two of the Dusty Smith show on JFK. Has plans to escape to Russia? Apparently this guy has Bitcoin money and he's uh, thought about it. You have to have dual citizenship. You gotta be able to disappear at the blink of an eye. Uh, this video was released a day after supposedly his wife went missing. So uh, yeah, yikes. Just one more piece of information in this uh, amazing tapestry of true crime that JF Garrity is placed upon our plate. It's such a bounty. So welcome, folks. I'm Dusty Smith. Thank you for joining me tonight. This is the second true crime deep dive episode uh, looking into the potential murder of Mama Garape, uh, Mama JF, uh, this dude's wife. And he had three more interviews since our last show about this that were completely disastrous. So there's either one or two things happening right now. Either he murdered his wife and he's very confident he's not going to get caught. And he thinks, hey, if I just go do all these programs and uh, lean into it people be like hey if he was guilty there's no way he'd be doing all these interviews and laughing about her being dead and talking about how he would do it if he did it so he must be innocent either that's true or he's uh, just a complete fucking psychopath that didn't kill her and he gets awful people thinking he did uh, which he's got a lot of problems other than that so we're going to uh, look into his interviews today a uh, real real interesting program thank you guys for joining me i appreciate it uh, so let's go ahead and jump right into it uh, first off he blocked me uh, last true crime podcast I did, I covered this, and then somebody clipped out a little piece, uh, which he shared. Um, and then, of course, I went and I immediately posted the entire video because he was just trying to post it out of context. And he immediately blocked me, which doesn't make him look uh, innocent to me. That's just me. Uh, once again, before I get started, folks, I just want to say I have no inside information to any of this. Everything I say is pure speculation. JF Gary Pay is uh, innocent until proved almost, on, actually, better, better than Dexter's kill suit. Um, Old video was released of him, I guess, doing COVID preparation, but in it, he happened to show off his uh, murder kit full of plastic bags, uh, cleaners. Yeah. Lots of cleaner. Lots of uh, paper towels. And uh, just to put the ice on the cake, he has a full murder kit. He has a full suit, guys. 
to make sure no blood spatter could get on him. Holy God, how is this real life right now? The dude living his best Dexter life. Always a video out there, folks. So, uh, yeah, this is going to come back into play later. Holy God. Um, and he even talks about Dexter and how to commit the perfect crime. Already got the gear in a little tote box ready to fucking go. And uh, then, yeah, how many of us don't have a biohazard box at home? Uh, so then, folks, this may be a hint that he is not guilty. We're going to cover this. Uh, so apparently there was an updated missing person sighting. So uh, you might remember JF's claim is that on the 17th of June, he took Mama Garape, uh, Mama JF, and took her to a uh, gas station where there were cameras everywhere, and he let her off, and she was, like, going on a trip, right? She was uh, going on survivalism. She bought all this camping equipment, and she had, uh, according to him, she had plans uh, that he vaguely knew about to go to some kind of a survivalist retreat area, and uh, she was preparing for it for a long time, and he, uh, that was her plan. He dumped her off, and uh, so then this was released. Apparently, the uh, police says that they had a sighting of her on June 19th in a little town that was two hours away from where they live, and uh, Garapé is jumped on all this. See? Proof, proof, I am not guilty. Um, RMCP continue their investigation. Locates Laura Pantoin. I don't know if that's pronounced your name, but that's her, Mama GF. Um, have learned that her last known sighting was on Albert Street and Amokton on June 19th. She was last seen wearing a brown faux leather jacket, black pants, and had a school bag with her. Uh, RMCP have made use of the new Missing Persons Act as part of the investigation. So this line is uh, interesting because according to the Missing Persons Act, that means they're taking this super seriously. They don't think that she's just off on some kind of uh, adventure like JF says she's on. Uh, they actually believe that she might need to be found, which means they've uh, implemented this act that allows them to access her phone and internet records and obtain judicial orders to require a cell phone and social media companies to share GPS. So, yeah, they're uh, definitely looking into it. It doesn't seem like they believe in JF Garapé. So uh, I looked into it, folks. How long do, like, gas stations, how long do people that security cameras usually keep the security footage around? So it's been over uh, four months since he says that she was missing. More on that later. It may be longer than that. Uh, and so I looked it up. And surprise, 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 folks. Even gas stations don't hold video for more than 90 days. So I do not believe that, first of all, the gas station that he supposedly took her to would have any evidence of this happening. So I don't believe it actually happened. I think he Googled it just like I did. He realized 90 days have passed, and then he had to explain what happened to her. And he was like, oh, well, I'm just going to say, uh, through this gas station, I looked around for security cameras, and I saw them, so I'm good. He even admits later in one of these videos I'm going to show you, one of these interviews he did, uh, that police haven't told him that they found him on the video footage of the gas station. So I don't believe that ever happened. And I also don't believe uh, this report of the missing person. I think uh, one of two things is probably happening here. Um, either the cops are trying to set him up, the cops are like, we want to see if we put this fake sighting out there, if he'll change his story, which he did, folks. I'm going to show you. He changed his story after the sighting was put out there. I think either they were like, we're going to try to do a gotcha on him because he's claiming that she was going on this camping trip and uh, she was uh, ready to go survivalist out in the wild. And uh, we're going to put this out that she was just carrying a little small book bag, which destroys his narrative he was trying to put out there that she was going out for any kind of a uh, prolonged survivalist trip and see if he'll jump on this and be like oh yeah now i remember that's exactly what she was wearing and she only has his book back so he has to change his story which is what happened or since none of this footage is going to be on video still after four to five months um 
This is probably just some person misremembering how they remember after four months all of a sudden. Oh, yeah, back on the exact 19th day, four months ago, I saw this woman. Uh, we have false identifications all the time in true crime. You know this if you watch uh, any kind of true crime. A lot of times the police come back later and say, okay, well, this was uh, an invalid sighting. Uh, so either one of the two things is happening. It's possible one of his fans who seemed very eager to help him get away with this uh, reported this. I have no idea, but I do not believe this reporting. Now, if it uh, is verified m- more, I-, I could change my working hypothesis on what is happening, folks. But I actually do have a working hypothesis. And then he talked to her for another two days. And then on the 19th, nobody heard from her ever again. I don't believe this claim. I believe she died earlier than that. I believe she died at least a couple weeks before the 17th. In fact, I believe JF on this video right here is about to tell us exactly the day or right around the time his wife died and exactly why she died. So JF has this thing he does in these videos that he's trying to uh, explain away questions that he knows are going to come up. So a couple weeks before the 17th, before he claims that he took her to this gas station and let her off on her adventure, he apparently had... So once again, want to be absolutely clear, I, one, do not believe J.F.'s narrative. Two, I do not believe that he killed her. I don't believe that he committed murder. But his, his narrative strikes me as very difficult to believe. Some kind of a episode he was doing where she tried to rush in holding something she wasn't supposed to be holding. Now, I'm going to tell you what I think that is after I play the clip. But... Clearly something that was incredibly embarrassing to him. Before she got on the air, he cut the camera off and he banned her from being on the show. She was never seen again after this period. And so other people were watching that show. Now he has to come up with an explanation because he's afraid. Any day now, the cops are going to say, hey, we've had both reports of hundreds of, people, hundreds of people watching your show when you cut it off suddenly. And then Mama JF was never seen again. So he's preemptively trying to explain away all these things. So then if he's asked about it later, he's like, I've already answered that. I already answered it. See? No, you idiot. I bent it from the show because she broke the rules. So here is his very poor attempt to explain this away why she was never seen again after this date. You know, just just before she left in June, I remember a bizarre show, a bizarre show where I accused her of terrorism uh, because she tried to enter the studio mm-hmm. with something that I do not allow at all on this show, like at all. Keep talking, and she knows it very well that there will never be such things on this show mm-hmm. and she attempted to surprise me by surprise opening the door of the studio and came running to my camera and i had the i had the chance to turn off the camera just before she arrived to me because it's like it's like two meters that she did a two meter run to try to violate one of the ultimate rule of the show a rule so intense that you guys cannot even ever hear it. Mm. That you guys cannot e- that I can cannot even tell you what the rule is. Oh, definitely, that's suspicious. Uh, and it's like, and then I said, Mama JF, uh, you, you're banned from the show for a couple of weeks uh-huh. because that was actual terrorism. Oh, definitely, uh, terrorism. You have attempted to terrorize me, and uh, mm-hmm. yeah, so so that was uh, that was maybe weeks before she left. Weeks before she left. Um, I don't know that it's directly related. Yeah, I think it is directly related. This was the last time, as far as we know, anybody ever saw her again. This incident where she tried to embarrass you, terrorize you, and then after that, she's missing. So this is when I think uh, she was killed, folks. Now, I was unable to find this video. I went look for it. If anybody out there has the video he's talking about where he shut it off, um, I don't know if he's taken it out. If it's missing, maybe we can crowdsource this and help find this exact moment. But I think this is what got her killed. Now, there's been speculation about what it was that she was holding. And uh, I have an idea about that 
after watching his other interviews he's done, folks, he is psycho if you mention his kids. He has, he rage quit one of these interviews I'm going to show you. He set forth conditions for each one of these interviews that no one is even allowed to mention he has children in any way. If you do, he will immediately rage quit and leave the show. And uh, so I think probably what she was holding was one of her kids. Now, why? Why would this freak him out? Well, there's other theories about this. Some people think that Garapé is so um, anti-state that he has not gotten birth certificates for these children, that he home birthed them, and he's trying to keep them off the radar from the government. Now, he's talked about having other children taken away from him before by the courts. So he's obviously uh, hyper-concerned about this. Um, Apparently, from what I've heard, he doesn't have a driver's license. I don't know if that's true or not, but everything he could do to avoid being on the radar of the state, he does. Going so far as to apparently having a way to escape to Russia at any time he wants to. And not having your kids have a birth certificate is a no-no, especially in Canada which could directly get maybe his kids taken away from him, uh, get him in even more trouble. So that is, uh, right now, my working hypothesis. So I'm going to go through my entire timeline on what I believe at this moment happened. And uh, then what we'll do is we'll watch his interviews, and we'll see if what he's saying in the interviews matches my working hypothesis that I'm going with right now. Once again, if more information comes out, uh, my hypothesis will change. My hypothesis is based only on the information I have right now. So I'm believing after whatever this incident was happened, he was like, this bitch, you got to go. Obviously, he probably shoved her out of the room. We see how he's treated her before when she comes in and embarrasses him. He shoves her away, mutes it, turns the camera off. So I'm guessing they got in a big argument. She probably said, you know, fuck you. I'll leave you taking the kids. And then he was like, nope. Offed her. Now, how he offed her, I have no idea. I, like, strangulation would have been the least amount of, like, blood cleanup. But she a big woman. She, like, five foot ten. And Jeff Garapé is, like, a, a dope bitch, right? So, I, I, once again, I'm just making it up. I first see him wearing his whole Dexter outfit and just walking up to her and blam. And then he's got to clean up all the blood of his blood uh, kit. And he's got to repair the drywall, which he's already admitting to do. And he got to dig the bullet out and shit. Or maybe they just got in a struggle to fight. And that's why he had to repair the drywall. I don't know. Could have been strangulation. Could have been. Who knows? But this is where I think she died sometime right around this period. So uh, this is around uh, between June 1st and the end of May. He did not say that he had dropped her off on this uh, survivalist adventure till the 17th. So he had uh, a couple weeks to clean up the body, clean up the mess, and decide what he was going to do, uh, how he's going to explain this away. At first, obviously, he has her phone and his phone, and so he can just uh, make it look like she's still alive by using her phone and text back and forth or whatever. But at some point, he knows somebody's going to come looking for her. He knows that she's got to be seen, so he has to explain away why she's no longer there. So uh, what's he going to say? Oh, well, she just up and ran off, left her two kids, one of which is still probably nursing still to disappear into the wilderness. And he's like, okay, well, how do I sell this? All right, well, um, once again, folks, he's on his If I Did It crime uh, tour right now. And on one of these interviews I'm going to show you, he admits that he knows how to make it look like he has logged in at home on the Internet, searching and doing stuff while he's not actually there. I'm going to show you. So what I think probably he did was he, uh, he set up his phone to be able to be tracked how, however he explains what I'm going to show you at his house. Uh, he takes her phone. He drives near uh, that um, bridge slash gas station. I don't think he actually stopped at that gas station at all. Um, I think later, when after four months passed, he realized that they no longer had the footage there. He just claimed, oh, yeah, I stopped there. There are cameras everywhere, which also makes him look incredibly guilty. Why are you looking around for cameras and shit? Um, Especially if you think your girl might come back. I mean, none of this makes any sense. So I think uh, he probably did that and then probably uh, then turned her phone off or left her phone there or something. Went back to his house. Then he came back another day, moved it a little bit. Um, he had three days to do this. Drive around, make it look like she was still alive before he sent the text saying, hey, I'm turning my phone off. You're never going to hear from me again. And this is the alibi I think he put out there thinking that this was going to make him untouchable. 
hey, I, there's data information that I was still at home, and her phone is maneuvering around out here away from me, so, hey, I'm, I'm good to go. And they're never going to find the body because four months has passed, and I'm pretty sure uh, no body, no conviction. And so he is supremely confident now he's going to get away. That is my working theory. So uh, his original explanation for what happened, which I'm going to show you, was she bought all this camping equipment. She's a trained 007 and was going to go off the grid, go out to the wilderness, and just disappear. But then a sighting of her came out on the 19th. And he was like, holy shit, this just fell in my lap. Uh, so obviously, I just remembered. That's exactly what she was wearing. She was wearing this long leather coat that no one has ever seen her wear before, which she's going to admit to. Uh, and, but the report says she's wearing a small book bag, which basically goes against my claim that she was going to the woods for survival. So I have to change my story. And so he changed his story, folks. The, the story fucking changed. It, it's wild. So uh, we're going to go through that. If you change your story, it definitely makes you look way, way more guilty. And uh, now I think, he, like I said, I think he's so supremely confident he's going to get away with it. He's just on his If I Did It tour. He's like basking in the glow of people thinking he's a murderer and whatnot. So uh, here's a, uh, just a little amuse-bouche, a little appetizer of what we're going to see in the interviews coming up. Uh, first of all, this is the interview I already showed you guys on the last show, October 4th. And if you watch the entire video, I've already played it for you. Go watch the uh, first part of this true crime deep dive if you want to see it. But it's very clear that his narrative that he's trying to set forth is that she bought all this camping equipment. She was definitely going to disappear. Survivalism out in the woods, out in nature. She's trained for this. Uh, this was his idea. So she left and she had a whole plan. She had, she had bought uh, camping material. Uh -huh. She was on her way to some sort of survivalist trip. From what I understood, it looked like she... So, yeah, good good question. When did someone last see her alive? And why does JF change his story? Was preparing for life in the wild. There you go. She had planned this for a while. She was going for life in the wild on a survivalist trip that she had planned, right? That's what he said October 4th. October 6th. But looking at the size of her bag as she left, uh, I wouldn't think that she was going, at the, at the point when she left, I wouldn't think that she was going for extended, extended survival in nature. So he is stuttering while he's saying this, you might notice. And the reason I think he's stuttering because he's nervous about this point. He knows that he's changing his story here. And he's stuttering over his words because uh, this is uh, the weak point now. When you start changing your story, when you have to start changing your story, it makes you look extremely bad. And he knows this, so he's uh, much more nervous than he usually is. Let's look at it again. Her life in the wild, but looking at the size of her bag as she left, uh, I wouldn't think that she was going, at the, at the point when she left, I wouldn't think that she was going for extended, extended survival in nature. All right, and then back on the October 4th, when he put his first video, he's still trying to sell this idea, folks, over and over and over again, that she was going to disappear for survival reasons in the wild. I conclude that, okay, she's going off-grid. You know, she's going full survivalism. I'm dropping potentially my own identity behind. I'm potentially disappearing in nature. I'm dropping my identity. I disappear in nature. Nobody will find me again. October 4th. Look, Dusty Smith is, is raising legitimate questions. These are good questions. JF does change his story. October 6th, it changes. We're not talking, uh, at least as far as I know, she, she had no intent of going into the actual forest, surviving for extended period. All right, well, it's changing. Your story's changing, buddy. It's like, a, hey, a, a sighting came out and you had to change your story to match the new evidence because you think that's what makes you look less guilty. But it don't. It actually makes you look more guilty. And so we're going to show you uh, the interview where he says this in coming up. So, um... I guess we'll go ahead and just jump into it, folks. Oh, no, I showed you this, where he has his uh, crime scene gear, his uh, murder kit. So, he did uh, three disastrous interviews. First off, with this lady, who literally used this thumbnail, this thumbnail, 
was the one she used for her JF Garapay interview. For some reason, uh, this uh, complete fucking winner decides to use a thumbnail of her in a bikini to talk to this guy about murdering his mother, uh, his wife, uh, which is strange as shit. So uh, let's go ahead and jump in the interview. Um, we're going to... No, no, okay. So we're not jumping out of the interview yet. First off, we're going to jump in this, this interview with The Crucible, a guy who calls himself, I believe, a Papa Fascist or something like that. It's not the type of person that you would think uh, Jeff Gayapay would be uh, doing interviews with. Um, but he actually does a good job. That's the thing. He slow walks Garapay into talking and incriminating himself, even though this guy doesn't seem to believe or says he doesn't. Okay, here's the previous video Dusty Smith did, noting that uh, JF has been accused of sexual assault on multiple occasions. It's interesting to examine the manosphere of what it's become and watch their content and see what they reward and gravitate towards. So, uh, yep, here he is. Jeff Garapay was spotted in his words planting a potato. So that is a diss on his girlfriend, which many people think has mental disabilities. If you don't know who Jeff Garapay is. So basically, he's a biologist. But he quit doing biology because he kept getting accused of sexual harassment, having problems where he was working, and decided, I guess, he could make more money grifting and going on the drunken peasants and spreading white supremacy and stuff. He, uh... Had one interesting thing that happened, though, that it needs to be brought up. Other than the fact that he received $25,000 from Jeffrey Epstein. Yes, true story. In 2014, Jeffrey Epstein sent him $25,000, if that's uh, any indication of his character. But he also had another uh, alleged interaction with a girl who was, by all accounts, mentally retarded. I know that's not politically correct to say, but whatever word you want to use, I'll read you what it says here. Uh, during the, uh, Let's read it through the Rational Wiki website, because the Rational Wiki website gives us several... Interesting points, like for the fact that he admits that he has been accused of sexual assault in court by seven different women, which is crazy. Of course, he claims he never did anything wrong. I've never been accused in, by anybody of sexual harassment, much less in court. I don't think most of us ever have, much less seven times. So, like, if you've been accused in court by seven women of sexual harassment, that seems uh, pretty bad, in my opinion. So, Okay, there's, there's a big difference between sexual harassment and sexual assault. He doesn't believe Jeff, Jeff, JF killed his wife. He gets a lot of shit out of him. So we're, I'm going to watch this entire interview, folks. It's going to be a deep dive. And we're going to look into it and see if my hypothesis fits what he's saying here. Okay. Uh, interesting questions raised by Dusty Smith. I certainly don't have any conclusions about the matter. Right, let's get some more from John J. Mearsheimer. Uh, given what you said about the fact that there are a lot of Ukrainians who would be opposed to giving up any territory, if I'm playing Russia's hand, right, I'm playing Russia's hand, and I'm in the driver's seat militarily. And I know that in the future, there's a possibility that Ukraine may want to come back and take territory. Don't I have an incentive to take four more oblasts now, to take Kharkiv, uh, to take Odessa, and so forth and so on? Don't I want to take almost half of Ukraine and make Ukraine really... And uh, Elliot says in the chat that JF, like uh, Andrew Tate, they're being punished for misogyny. Not not so much misogyny for things that they've said, but for concrete behavior, right? If JF had simply said politically incorrect things, he would not be the focus of so much negative attention, right? But Andrew Tate and JF Garapi are receiving a lot of negative attention primarily for things they've done, not for politically incorrect things they've said. A dysfunctional state, rump state. So down the road, if things turn south, I'm better positioned than I would be if I froze the present situation on the ground. Well, I think that there are certainly voices in Moscow that are thinking in exactly that way. And I think Putin is absolutely open to that kind of thinking. And uh, you, you can see that there is at the moment a debate going taking place. That is why this can only end in that manner if there's an agreement between the Americans and the Russians and one which the Russians were confident. The, the, the way I outlined, um, 
it could only end in that kind of way if it was agreed between the Russians and the Americans, and the Russians were confident that the Americans would stick with it. But uh, given the trend, the course of events, I, I think that quite plausibly, the Russians would take more. And we come back to what Putin said about these cities, and he was clearly referencing Odessa here, but of course not just Odessa, places like Nikolaev, which is the great shipyard, and um, other cities on the um, Black Sea coast. Kharkiv. Kharkiv as well, as well, but also cities that were created by Catherine the Great and Potemkin. He was specifically referencing those, and he says, these are Russian cities. And talking in that way, he basically is signaling that, you know, unless there's some kind of agreement that satisfies Russian security concerns now and which will stick and which they're confident will stick with the future. They will, they, will, they will go on pressing forward until they take these places too. And I think militarily, they, they increasingly think they can. He also said something else, by the way, which was uh, potentially very ominous and should not be underestimated because I said that he always talks about history and he was talking about 17th century history now. And he was talking about how the original Ukraine that broke away from Poland came to join Russia. And he said that the Ukrainians of that time, those in Kiev and Chernigov and Zhitomir, they sent a letter to the Tsar, the Russian Tsar, in, which is still apparently in the Russian archives, in which they referred to themselves as Russian Orthodox people. Now, I don't think he meant by that, that um, today these people are Russian. But we've had in Russia, this is something where I think Glenn is much more informed than I am, but we have in Russia increasingly this developing concept of the Ruski Mir, the Russian world. And it did seem to me that what Putin was hinting at there was that unless there's a deal done very soon, the Russians will not just take the four regions, the four oblasts, and perhaps you know, an awful lot more, but that they might consider also Kiev, Zhitomir, and Chernikov as part of the Russian world, in which case whatever government is left in that region of Ukraine um, would have to be in some way um, a satellite of Moscow's. I think in the I think the West we tend to underestimate the, the impact of what the Minsk agreement meant because uh, uh, there's all there's very little trust now. That's my impression in Moscow that they that any agreement we can offer them. Can I just ask you? Can I just speak back? Yeah, sir. Yeah, because you're absolutely correct. And in those same comments, Putin actually mentioned the Minsk agreement, and he actually spoke about the absence of trust. So it, in in all and this was in the same. So the Western media has consistently underestimated Putin. Remember the the dominant threads of Western media coverage of this war is that Putin is insane, Putin has gone nuts, that uh, Putin has become increasingly isolated and making irrational decisions, that uh, Putin is in the throes of some kind of terminal illness, that uh, this terminal illness has, has devastated his thinking. Now, as we stand, November 12, 2023, it increasingly looks like uh, Vladimir Putin and Russia are winning this war that uh, Putin is going to achieve exactly what he set out to achieve. And all, all the, the signs are that this conflict is going his way. The Russian economy did not fall apart under Western sanctions. He prepared his economy for Western sanctions. That uh, it appears once again that Vladimir Putin has been tremendously underestimated. I'm not a, a Putin fan, right? I'm, I'm sure... Putin has many thuggish qualities, but he does seem to be a fairly effective leader in Russian interests. Not perfect, but uh, overall it seems to be fairly effective, and it seems like the West has once again underestimated Putin. In discussion, as the one that I've just been discussing, mm -hmm. where, where he made all those other points which I've just been discussing. Because I guess uh, if, if they could get a deal now uh, in which they do not take more territory, but they would be certain that Ukraine would remain neutral, not join NATO, and also that the uh, the language and cultural rights of uh, Russian speakers in the south and east, uh, that they, this would be...
Right. Who, who's terminal now? It increasingly looks like Joe Biden is going to lose the 2024 election. Increasingly, it looks like Ukraine is overwhelmingly going to lose this war. What's going to happen to NATO after this disaster? So great point in the chat, Elliot Blatt. Who's terminal now? Does not seem to be Putin. Protected. I think they would go for a deal. The, the problem is the, the trust is gone, and the, uh, any agreement you would come with, uh, they would have to see it in the context, not just Minsk, seven years of being, uh, well, uh, fooled effectively, but they see all other agreements back from, uh, you know, the NATO-Russia founding act of 97. It was very specific. We weren't supposed to place any troops in the new member states. Uh, but only recently, the NATO general secretary said, oh, this is unacceptable. That means you have a, a two-tier system within NATO. So we were openly denouncing agreements we made in the past. So I think, I don't think they would, they would need something very solid in order to trust this. So in the absence of it, I, I, I also think that uh, they might go for more territory, which would mean, yeah, prolonging the war. Um, that being said, I think uh, it would be hard. I also agree that they don't want to talk to the Europeans. They said that even back in December of 21, that was the point. Uh, let's just talk to Washington. Uh, it's kind of pointless to talk to the Europeans. Uh, but, but I think that, as uh, yeah, John mentioned, uh, the, the delusion, I think, um, w- would be difficult uh, for, for Washington to, dis- to discuss as well, because in the US, just like in this country, by the way, uh, we've been talking for two years that Ukraine is winning, Ukraine is winning, but now we're kind of coming to terms, okay, they're not winning, but we kind of replaced it with a new delusion, because now we're so I'm thinking we should put Nick Fuentes to work with his searchlight looking for stains and stuff. Yeah. We got to get this in. This was the funniest thing. So when you left, right, when he kicked you out because you left the door unlocked or whatever. Right. He, you left the couch. And yeah, I left the couch. I left I left my couch in my bed because uh, I had to move by myself. And he was like, you know, be out by May 1st. Fair enough. I waited and I was waiting to move initially because like we were supposed to all move to Florida. But then he got mad at me after November and he's like, you need to get out or pay me. And it's like, okay, well, I've been here because I was supposed to have a job. And then I was waiting because we were supposed to go to Florida and he had like family issues and things. So I was trying to stick around and be like a good friend. I wasn't just going to be like, fuck Chicago. I hate it here. I'm out. Um, But he's like, you need to start paying me, whatever. I'm like, okay, fair enough. Um, May 1st, I'll be out. I wanted to get out as soon as possible anyways to get the fuck away from him. But uh, I left my couch and I left my bed um, just because I can't haul that in my car. Um, and it's like an eight-hour drive. So, um, And I didn't want to rent a U-Haul. But he's telling his all of his buddies that he's uh, he got a black light because he wanted to go see if there was any cum on my couch. Ah! He was, he's, like that was some sort of own. No, 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 no. no. Oh, okay, just, oh, hold on. He's cum yeah, hunting? Yeah, he was, he was, he was, he was real, licking yeah. the spots. He was well, licking I don't know about that. But no, come on. Prancing around like a cat. That licking was up the cum. big. Uh, <laughs> he's got a yeah, black light. He's looking good. So, do you think? Hey, do you think like he cut out the patches where there was some semen and he like sniffs it as like a remembrance thing? I don't know. It's the truth. It's the truth. Oh, no. Was there cum oh, on the boy. couch? Was there cum on the couch, Jaden? You can no, tell us. I'm, no, I don't. Okay. Know. <laughs> you, leave, you leave a little batter behind as a memento for him? Come on, Jay. No, I don't think so. He claimed I left all this trash behind, but I have the video. Like, I, I Jayden, are you going to tell the, under, the underwear story, Jaden, or are we going to say Oh, fuck. Is there more? So maybe, maybe we need to put uh, crime hunter Nick Fuentes on the case of missing Mama JF. 
people were saying, well, there's a stalemate. And uh, but, but still, if you look at the actual uh, war of attrition, the artillery rates, the missiles, the equipment, the amount of mobilized men, uh, these numbers are shifting very quickly in, in Russia's favor. So it's not a stalemate. And at, so at, at some point, something's going to break uh, on the Ukrainian side. So I, I think if they want to negotiate based on this premise that we're now in a stalemate as opposed to Ukraine winning, we just replaced, I think, one delusion with another, which would then uh, result in, uh, I guess, the Western side entering discussions with uh, uh, with uh, conditions which would be, well, too, too unacceptable to the Russians. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, John, what was your <laughs> views on this? I'd like to make a quick comment and then ask you a question, Glenn. I think in terms of stalemate, people who make that argument focus on territory, how much territory has been gained or lost by either side. And of course, there, it kind of does look like a stalemate if you just use territory as the indicator. But uh, that's not the key indicator. The key indicator is casualty exchange rate. And the casualty exchange rate, uh, despite the fact it's hard to get precise numbers, I believe decisively favors the Russians. I think the Ukrainians have lost enormous numbers of soldiers. It sickens me to just think about the number of people who have died uh, in the counteroffensive alone. Uh, but since the start of this war, and this is due in large part to the fact that the Russians have a massive advantage in artillery, and then the Ukrainians were foolish enough to launch this crazy counteroffensive, which was doomed to fail. But it's not a stalemate because what matters in a war of attrition is the casualty exchange ratio, and it favors the Russians greatly, and they have a much larger population. And this, of course, explains uh, why uh, the Russians are going to win this one. We can debate what victory looks like. But Glenn, the question I have for you as a West European, if the deal that Alexander described uh, is put into place, this is going to look like a humiliating defeat for NATO. Russia is going to effectively win. Ukraine is not going to become part of NATO. It's the end of the open door policy. What do you think will be the consequences of Alexander's outcome for NATO and for Western Europe? Uh, that's, that's a great question. I, I think it's, it's not just humiliating for, for for NATO, but I think it can cause a lot of divisions. Uh, uh, just a, uh, before answering that, a quick note based on what Alexander said before. If you look at Ukraine's ability to negotiate, this will be so weak because uh, I think a lot of unity was premised on the idea that they would be able to win. But once they have to negotiate and recognize defeat, I think you have the political leaders like Zelensky clashing with the military, which is quite upset about being pressured into this offensive, which they see as a uh, you know PR war. And uh, you know you have the uh, you have the civil society, you have the far right nationalists. All of them will start to I think collide, or their fragmentations will deepen if they put in a position where they have to negotiate. But in terms of NATO, I think uh, it, it, it looks a bit like it could go both ways. On one hand, I, I keep hearing the rhetoric uh, in the media every day that, that this war has brought NATO closer than ever before, that uh, because of this external threat, it necessitates uh, greater uh, integration. On the other hand, I think uh, uh, some countries, especially in Germany, might see itself as... Uh, uh, yeah, we'll reconsider some of the security arrangements because uh, uh, as more and more now, as we now have to speak more about uh, actually having negotiations, I think the media is opening a bit more about what actually happened, what led to this war. And uh, as we begin... Right. Remember all the media coverage about how strong NATO has gotten because of this war and Europeans just rallying together. I wonder if that will stand up. Okay. One of the ways that I like to start my day is by listening to podcasts from thedailyreprieve.com. It's a series of podcasts from the 12-step group Sexaholics Anonymous. Here's Art B. What's keeping me sober this morning? My name's Art, and I'm a sexaholic. Hey, Art. I'm a weak and fearful person. I fear the disapproval of others. I fear failure. I fear starting things. I love the honesty in 12-step groups. I mean, I resonate with this. I, I have same issues i'm a compulsive masturbator but my drug of choice is sexual fantasy lust in the mind yeah guilty till i got some recovery that's my first drink that's what will make me drunk god has kept me sober since august 1st 1985 and i ask god to clear away my ego 
and my fear. Help me get out of the way. And I ask God to move my voice out across the room so that uh, people can hear. I started out by summarizing what it was like. Uh, and, and But I left out. I left out a key part of that, and that is uh, I focus my mind on lust to the point of insanity. Uh, I made myself insane, and I harmed others, and I broke the law repeatedly. I was absolutely out of control. I was insane. This is not the insanity defense. Uh, it's, it's a description of my thinking and behavior. Uh, so the big book says we tell what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. So uh, I, I will touch some more a little on what it was like. But I'll- That's a great formula, right? Talk about what it was like, what you did to get well, and what life is like now. I'm not going to focus on that. Uh, uh, I want to get past that and talk especially about what happened. Right, and this is a guy who's had sobriety since 1985, right? He might know some things after more than 30 years of sobriety. That middle part. Now, in a sense, uh, what happened, I could talk about just four days in my life near the end of July 1985. But uh, actually, I need to go back 10 years before that when I went to an open AA meeting with a member of my family. And uh, the, the member of my family at the end of that meeting picked up a white chip. Uh, and uh, I learned at the end of the meeting that I was an Al-Anon. I have to mention this other program because uh, Al-Anon and especially AA are essential to my recovery. So the normal rule in 12-step meetings is that you don't mention other programs. Uh, because people want to get off the topic, all right? People want to talk about anything but, you know, that which is most painful and embarrassing. Over the next 10 years, I went to more than 1,000 open AA meetings. I went to Al-Anon as well, but I went to AA meetings, open AA meetings. I'm not an alcoholic uh, because it's the only place in the world that I felt at home. And I didn't know why, but I kept going back. I didn't know why. Uh during those 10 years, I was trying to get sober. Uh, and, and I would, at, at some point in those 10 years, I would have started using that term, get sober. But I didn't know how. Uh, I knew I didn't want to continue acting out and harming people. Uh, and during those 10 years, I saw alcoholics come into the rooms, and I saw that those who... Right, so even though he wasn't an alcoholic for 10 years... He was going to open AA meetings, meeting people who aren't alcoholics. It was late in the evening when my phone buzzed with a Twitter notification that Nick Fuentes was caught red-handed looking at tranny porn. I couldn't believe it. I laughed. Soon after, the Groypers were doing damage control, claiming Mr. Krabs 9000 was a fake account. Naturally, I had to get to the bottom of it. Nick Fuentes and his followers claimed this account, Mr. Krabs 9000, was forged by a disgruntled white nationalist to smear him. Nick posted screenshots to his newly created Punished Hoopla account. I questioned Michael Alberto, and he claimed the account tricked him, that he wasn't a member of Nick's private chat where he drops his new Twitter alts. But he wasn't the only one tricked. You had Dalton Claude Filter, 
Kai Clips, several Groiper generals, Groiper accounts, and even Ethan Ralph himself, all fooled by this supposed fake account. Either this was the best forgery in history, or it was Nick's account. I compared the archive tweet to the video and it was a match. I compared the tweets to older posts by Nick. Nick would always choose a Spongebob-themed account. It was all starting to fit. Nick went live, and his chat was in full revolt. All mods were assembled. Nick spent several minutes live on air checking his phone, and then the account was gone. Before you discount my investigation, let's go over some key pieces of evidence that point to this being real. Nick chooses Spongebob-themed accounts. He has said having sex with women is gay. Dating women is gay. Having sex with women is gay. And having sex with men is gay. And, and you know, it's really, it's all gay. He has been caught looking at aesthetic boys on Instagram. He went on a date with Catboy Cammy, also known as Lolly Socks. Ultimately, it is up to you what you choose to believe. I have no smoking gun to show you. But based on what you've seen, Nick is at best an asexual weirdo and at worst, a closeted homosexual. For now, the case remains open. And next tech, uh, says case I was closed. following Nick in his sticky trail when my phone buzzed with the notification I was banned off of Twitter. The Groipers were working overtime to cover up this story and throw off my investigation. This was a minor setback. The trail was starting to grow cold, but I wouldn't be deterred. I would need help to crack the case and so I enlisted the help of Noel and his Kiwi goons. Noel and his Kiwis are dealers in information. If there's dirt on someone in this city, they'll have it. Nick and his followers put together a schizographic exonerating Nick. Naturally, I reviewed it. Allegedly, there was a group of disgruntled AF interns and white nationalists trying to smear Nick. There was a big problem with it all. The screenshots provided had the timestamps covered up. They couldn't even use Photoshop or inspect element in a browser and had to resort to MS Paint covering up the dates. Sloppy job, Mossad. Paul Joseph Watson took the bait and believed Nick's story. I knew I'd have to pick up the pace of my investigation before more people were fooled by these schizo infographics. Nick claims this was all an elaborate gay op against him by an AF intern named Max. The Kiwis presented me with three suspects. Physics Ninja, Cool Guy, and Derry Tard. All of them claimed to be members of this gay ops group chat or had information about it. The Kiwis were good. Too good. They pointed out how Nick's supposed Greenlay account screenshot could be easily faked and how all of these screenshots could be faked. Nick claimed his most recent account was Chumbucket 5000 and not Mr. Krabs 9000. The screenshot only proved that Nick owned the Chum Bucket account and didn't disprove his ownership of Mr. Krabs 9000. The Kiwis told me there were two options at this point in their investigation. It was Nick's account, or it was created by someone high up in the AF community. The big boss, Noel, weighed in and told me about the UNS review. And while he was flipping through the tabs, you could see this, like, blowjob. And below, but below that is the UNS review, an alternative media selection. Uh, Nick Fuentes has talked about reading the UNS review, just kind of in passing. 
So it is a very interesting detail to add if you're trying to add credibility to like your, your gay op, if you're doing this as a gay op. A small important detail that I had missed. So now we know only someone with a deep knowledge of Nick would even think to include the UNS review in the tranny video. It was an odd detail that lends credibility to Mr. Krabs 9000 being Nick's account. The Kiwi sleuths were trying to find the owner of the Gay Ops group chat and believed they had tracked him down, Petrie Chore. He didn't want to talk to anyone and changed his username to prevent people from questioning him. Another member of the supposed group chat was found but locked his account and blocked anyone from contacting him. Another roadblock, but we were getting closer to the truth. Derry Tard, one of the supposed group chat members, came forward and turned himself in. He claimed to have troll's remorse and wanted to set the record straight that Mr. Krabs 9000 wasn't Nick and that it was all a gay op run by his friends. I was pressing X to doubt his story. The Kiwis asked him if he had leaked the group chat. He claimed he had no idea who leaked the chat. Interestingly, Derry Tard, like the other group chat members, deactivated his Twitter account, losing all his DMs. I started suspecting Derry Tard was trying to muddy the waters and throw us off the trail. He claimed he was paranoid about Bitcoin assassins coming after him for smearing Nick. A convenient excuse to be sure. Derry Tard appeared to be running damage control for Nick. Derry Tard also stated he couldn't provide any evidence that the group chat even existed. All right, that's the Come Detective Case Closed is the name of the video. All right, uh, you've heard of emotionally corrective experience. All right, that's when you have some sort of experience of connection with somebody that helps to undo and overcome trauma from the past. Well, I need to get regular doses of a spiritual correction. And one of my favorite ways of doing that is listening to podcasts from The Daily Reprieve. Here we kept go. coming back became beautiful. That was one of the messages of AA to me, the men and the women. Uh, those who kept coming back became beautiful. And, and why I choose that word, I don't know, but that is just the way it came to me. Uh, and I wanted to be beautiful. Uh, I didn't want to be ugly. And sometime during that 10 years, I realized what it would take for me to be sober. I realized that the insanity started in my head. So since I started 12-stepping, but most particularly since about uh, the end of 2015, I often, perhaps usually have days where I feel solid. To I feel good about every single decision that I made that day of any consequence. I mean, I, I get things wrong. I make mistakes. I still suffer from verbal impulsivity. I suffer from lack of focus, lack of attention. With, with details and, and tasks that are boring to me. But being able to assemble a life where all the different parts of it kind of work together, generally speaking, where you, you know, feel good or you feel fine with you know, every major decision you make, right? you feel solid. Right? It's a, a beautiful place to be. So sometimes I take you know, fairly long breaks of days, weeks from live streaming, Sometimes it's because I've got, you know, too many good things going on in my real life and I put a priority on my real life over my streaming life. But also just as often I, I take breaks from live streaming because I've really you know, messed up in some way. I've, you know, been careless. I feel embarrassed and humiliated and I just don't 
feel like I have the internal stuff to stand and deliver. And the way that I usually try to get back on course is trying to get a spiritual correction, listening to people who have substantial recovery like Art B. I realized that the way I made myself insane was I would get an image, get a sexual image in my head, uh, a scenario, uh, and I would build a story. And that sounds in a way that sounds a little rinky-dink, but that's, that's the way I experienced it. I would get an image in my head, and I would build a story. So, sexual fantasy. And whenever I say this, I can't think of the world out there of Earth people. And, uh, and, and uh, I think Earth people, to hear me say that I, that I got obsessed with sexual fantasy, some would say, well, so what? You know, we all, we all get into that. Or a counselor might say, oh, this is, a, this is an important part of, uh, of the inner life. Uh, well, that may be true for Earth people. I don't know. Uh, Earth people may be able to masturbate without uh, having a mood-altering experience. I don't know. Uh, but I became convinced, really convinced, so strongly convinced uh, that I, I... Right. I know people who say that they only masturbate to God. And... Uh, that, that may work for some people. Uh, other people who have addictive tendencies in the direction are best off with a no-fap lifestyle. I think I didn't figure it out. I think that, uh, that this is something God gave me, that my first drink, and I heard the alcoholics talking about their first drink, my first drink was the sexual fantasy, uh, grabbing hold of the sexual fantasy and uh, getting it going in my mind. Uh, now, this was, this was a drug for me. And uh, one way I can illustrate it is that right, after so, I was sober for a couple of years, uh, probably two or three years. So some people can fantasize like a gentleman, right? Some people, I assume, can masturbate like a, a gentleman. Right? Some people maybe have to engage in all sorts of activities that I can't engage in, and they're able to you know, maintain their dignity. But uh, it's important to know what your, your weak points are and what activities you cannot engage in. For some people, no drinking. For other people, they can't watch certain TV shows. Right? Other people, no marijuana. You know, other people, you know, no working for wages that, that pay less than what you need. Uh, and one of the memories of an old acting out situation, or just a memory of one of my standard sexual fantasies that I had used, uh, when, uh, when I would remember something like that, I could feel... My brain changed, and I, I my, my sponsor tells me, don't, don't analyze, don't analyze. Uh, my explanation is that I had enough clarity of mind by then, and it took me several years to get any clarity of mind, by the way, uh, but I had enough clarity of mind by then that I could feel the effect of the lust. Uh, so I also had the experience of having a sexual fantasy going in my head and realizing that I had the opportunity to masturbate and making the decision to masturbate. And I could feel, I could feel the change in my, in my body. Uh, and the, the sense I had was it. Right. So for some people, the, the chemistry that they cannot ingest is uh, alcohol. For others, it's cocaine or marijuana. And then for other people, it's the, the, brain chemicals that get released when they debt or when they engage in under-earning or when they engage in indulging of sexual fantasies, right? Some people can't handle these thoughts.
and they have to flee from them as if touching a hot stove. Was a kind of delicious numbness would come over me. Right, so there are many different approaches. I think there are more than a dozen 12-step programs with regard to sex addiction. So Sexaholics Anonymous is about the most rigorous, right? The, the goal is freedom from lust, right? just uh, letting go of sexual desire. Uh, for a program like Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous, you get to choose your own bottom lines of you know, what particular activities you don't want to engage in. So I say that I have an addiction to a substance, and the substance is what I manufacture in my head. Uh, I can feel it in my body. Uh, I tried to get sober. I tried to, to eliminate the sexual fantasies for at least 10 years. Uh, I first, I went to my first uh, open AA meeting in November 1975. Uh, and of course I, for a couple of decades, I had been trying to control my masturbation and acting out with any, without any success. But uh, I went, I attended open AA meetings from 1975 to 1985. And as I said, more than a thousand. Uh, I was, I was going to more AA meetings than some alcoholics. Uh, and, uh, now I understand those 10 years uh, as God's work preparing me to get sober. I didn't get sober. I was crazy in the head, and I was dangerous. Uh, but God was using those 10 years to, to prepare me. Halfway through those 10 years, uh, I was divorced from my first marriage. Right. I had 10 years of therapy, I had three years of Alexander Technique teacher training, and I probably needed all of it to open myself up to the possibility I needed to start attending 12-step programs. And uh, certainly, my addiction contributed a lot to the failure of that marriage. Uh, it was a very rough marriage. I was a lousy husband. Uh, I was isolated, communicated very little of anything of importance to my, to my first wife. Uh, blamed her for everything, uh, and uh, and yet I I resisted divorce. Uh, and by the way, we went to three years of marriage counseling trying to save that marriage, and I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for that. That was that was part of the journey too. It was uh, uh, during that during that marriage counseling, in the first session, in fact, I was so desperate to try to save that marriage that I told my first wife and the counselor the nature of my acting out. Uh, so, so that was part of my journey. Uh, we went to those three years of marriage counseling, and the marriage kept getting worse. And she said to me for the last couple of years we were married, I'm going to divorce you. Art, I'm going to divorce you. And I, I said, well, uh, divorce me if you insist, but I'm not going to divorce you. So I've had so many examples where people are just like essentially waving their hands at me. Stop, Luke, stop. You don't, don't do that. Quit that. Stop. Don't. You know, I'm going to have to completely cut ties with you or fire you, whatever it is. And they're waving their hands, and I'm not listening because I'm so intoxicated in my own emotional addictions. And one of, the, one of the things motivating me was I thought if I were outside of marriage, that I would be much more dangerous. And in fact, when I got married that first time, I thought it would make me normal, and it didn't. Uh... Right, so I had many coping mechanisms. I thought if I can just maintain this, I can, you know, cope with my unmanageable emotional addictions, including an addiction to sexual fantasy. What it was like. My first wife did not withhold sexual, uh, sexual commerce. 
Uh, and yet, after after a period, I preferred to masturbate rather than have sex with her. And there would be times when, uh, and, and I always went to bed before she did. Uh, and there would be times when I would uh, use, would get a fantasy in my head and just use the mattress, rub myself against the mattress to masturbate. And this is the bed she would come to later on. To come to right, everything we do affects other people. Like if you're rubbing yourself off on the mattress that your you know, wife will soon be joining you on, if you've got you know, an overspending addiction, an under-earning addiction, a marijuana addiction, alcohol addiction, if you are you know, engaging in activity that's bad for you, that will, of course, spill out to other people. Right? There's nothing that you can do alone that will not have repercussions for other people. Right? We, we lead lives that inevitably intersect with other people's lives bed. Uh, I feel a great deal of shame about that. Uh, I did great harm. And that's not the worst of what I did, but uh, that's the kind of marriage it was. Uh, so halfway through that 10 years, from 75 to 85, when I was going to AA meetings, the marriage ended. And uh, I, uh, I I thought that, that, the, that the, my life was over. Uh, and I was scared to death. Uh, and I had two children. I remember when I was struggling in 2005, 2006, 2007. I think I went on Wellbutrin during that period. And I just got into a repetitive train of thought that, you know, I'm effed. F-U-C-K-E-D. I'm so effed. I'm a total mother effer. I'm just effed. Right? That essentially, I got into a train of thought that there was no hope for me by that first marriage uh, and what was I going to do well I was immediately began looking around for someone to marry me uh, I still thought that I needed marriage to be normal and I thought well that marriage was no good but I'll get a good marriage and I'll be normal uh, so I was I was remarried within uh, just a little over two years which was too soon and uh, I was there were certain commonalities in the type of women that I'd have relationships with. Uh, they were often women who had fathers who were sex addicts. So I, my brokenness would meet, meet her brokenness, and in that brokenness we'd form a very intent, intense connections that uh, often spiraled in negative ways. Insane to remarry. Right. Uh, like, if you're damaged, the only people you're going to attract into your life are damaged people. The worst thing about being an under-earner is that people who are not under-earners are going to keep their distance from you. Right? This is the, the trad way of life, understanding how vulnerable we are, that we lead porous lives, and that you know what's going on around us is going to infect us. And my wife, who is my present wife, she was insane to marry me. Uh, although it is true... Uh, she had the spiritual depth to say to me, Art, I feel like I get to a certain point, I, and I'm trying to get close to you, and then I run into a wall. It's like you build up a brick wall around yourself. And countless people have said the same thing to me. That was really a gift for her to say that to me. And uh, so I said, well, let's go someplace where we can sit down. And, uh, and by the way... So, of course, you know, I'd only date and relate to people who are as equally damaged as me, but they weren't damaged in exactly the same ways that I was, so I got a lot of 
wisdom from them. And you know, one one woman, uh, the only girlfriend of which I'm aware, who's now died, uh, Christine. She had a lot of therapy, and she was able to you know, bravely state her needs. And sometimes it would just you know cut through my defenses that she was being so open and vulnerable with me, despite my you know frequently cold, callous behavior. This was part of my journey. I was practicing being honest with women. I was practicing because I realized that I had never been honest with women. So I was practicing being honest with women. And by the way, I found out it's a good dating technique. <laughs> but, but anyway, this one said that she ran to a wall. And so I said, let's sit down. And I told her uh, the nature of my sexual orientation and my acting out. Uh, so that was a good thing for me to do. Now, she said later that what she heard was that this guy really needs me. That's what she heard. So, uh, uh, but, you know, uh, th that wasn't my responsibility. Yeah, the, the best 12-step uh, program of which I'm aware for addressing one's relationships with other people is Al-Anon, right? Started out for the wives of alcoholics, but it's just a great program to help anyone get along with others because everyone's damaged in various ways. So the literal meaning of the group is for, for those whose lives have been affected by alcoholics. There was virtually no alcoholism in my early life, and yet... Many of the characteristics of alcoholics characterize many of the people close to me. So, uh, so I got married the second time, and uh, and I was not sober. And the marriage showed it. Uh, and after two and a half years into that marriage, by the way, don't do this at home. Don't get married unsober. Uh, <clears throat> two and a half years into that marriage, I got sober. So that was in 1985. Uh, and many times in, in meetings I've heard members of the program say that when they, when they got sober, they immediately got some clarity of mind and, uh, and they, 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 they started to lose that rage, uh, and... Yeah, the great thing about entering a 12-step program and the primary reason people's lives usually improve fairly quickly is you stop doing everything that you think is right and you start opening up to alternative ways of doing things and recognizing that often other perspectives other practices other ways of doing things are superior to one's own default habits had better relations with their family that wasn't true for me uh, and again i'll analyze and say i think that i had been numb all that time and when i got sober the numbness started to fade away and and all of these feelings came up and i i became a rageaholic and yelled at my wife and children and I, I remember when i got into under owners anonymous just getting a sponsor just recognizing the the wreckage that my underending tendencies had done to my life like answering all these questions about how my underending attend tendencies that affected my life with my family, with my friends, with my community, with my spiritual and religious life, my love life, when I, I came to terms with the, the wreckage of my life. I mean, I got fired from every job I held up until age 16. So I think I started working at about age 11. So between 11 and 16, I got fired from about four jobs. Over the course of my life, I've been fired over 20 times. And 
for, for weeks after seeing the damage that uh, my under-earning tendencies had had done to me, I just walked around in like a a state of shock. So these are the 12 symptoms of under-earning, time indifference. We put off what must be done. We do not use our time to support our own vision to further our goals. Idea deflection has been particularly strong for me because I've been so insecure. Therefore, the more insecure I feel, the less ability I have to be open to other people's ideas. So idea deflection means we compulsively reject ideas that could expand our lives or careers and increase our profitability. Compulsive need to prove has characterized my life. Just feeling driven to prove my worth and my value. Clinging to useless possessions, feeling very proud that I still have uh, T-shirts that are 20 years old. Exertion, exhaustion, yeah, habitually overworked, then become exhausted and quit working completely. Giving away our time, yeah, I just compulsively volunteer for all sorts of different causes and uh, do no clear benefit. Undervaluing and underpricing, so hard for me to you know, value my own abilities and services and to you know, seek uh, fair compensation. Isolation, characterize much of my life. We choose to work alone. And it might serve us much better to have co-workers, associates, or employees. Physical ailments, sometimes out of fear of being larger or exposed, we experience physical ailments. For, for years, I didn't make any videos. Between about 2012, 2014, I hardly made any videos because I was struggling with carrying over $50,000 in credit card debt. And it made me want to isolate. Misplaced guilt or shame. We feel uneasy when asking for what we are owed. Not following up. All right, characterize my life, not following up on opportunities, leads, or jobs that could be profitable. And finally, stability, boredom, create unnecessary conflict with coworkers, supervisors, and clients, generating problems that result in financial distress. So of these, say idea deflection, compulsive need to prove, exertion, exhaustion, undervaluing and underpricing, isolation, physical ailments, misplaced guilt or shame, and stability, boredom have been particularly strong for me. I had two more children with that marriage. Uh, I was a rageaholic. Uh, I was uh, uh, unable to cope with the kids very often. Uh, so so it, it took quite a bit of patience on my wife's part. At one point, she suggested a trial separation. Uh, so I almost lost that second marriage, but I didn't. Uh, and so this is... Uh, let, let me go back to... Uh, to 1985, and I said that I had to say, I had to talk about what happened. I talk about four days in July 1985. So uh, I was at an open AA meeting, uh, a Sunday evening open discussion meeting in Warner Robins uh, in July 1985, and it was a meeting that I I, I made religiously. I'm a regular church goer, but uh, I I made that meeting as regularly as I go to church for once. Right, a lot of people, regular churchgoers, regular synagogue goers, may even go every day and still have out of control sex addiction or other addictions. Thing because Sunday night was so scary. So, every Orthodox Jewish bachelor I know over the age of 28 that I know well is a porn addict. Uh, approaching the week for me. So, uh, so I was at that meeting, and, and after the meeting, a guy came up to me and started chatting about how he had a problem with masturbation since, since his divorce, which was not the kind of fellowship I normally expected after an AA meeting. And, uh, and I, I was mystified, and I was wondering if he was trying to pick me up. Uh, and, uh, but I just said, 
yeah, I had that problem too. And then he told me that there were people who met uh, and called themselves sex addicts and worked the 12 steps. And, you know, through all that time, as I was trying to get sober, it had never occurred to me why I was so comfortable at AA meetings. It never occurred to me that I was an addict. It never occurred to me. I'm so smart. <laughs> wow. So I have so many uh, selfish, degrading tendencies. I have to keep adding elevation to my life. So what way I add elevation to my life is through 12-step programs, 12-step talks, uh, classical music, uh, the practice of religion, having good people in my life. i got to keep seeking elevation because of many of my inherent tendencies towards degradation. All right, good to talk to you. I'll talk to you later. Bye-bye.